Hey, podcast of champions fans. I want to tell you about Mack Weldon before we get into the show. They're basically better than whatever you're wearing right now. I love all my Mack Weldon stuff. They believe in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. It's really easy. You go to the website, MacWeldon.com. Buy whatever you want. I got some great underwear, uh, great t-shirts. Now that I'm working out a little bit more, I've been using a lot of the Mack Weldon stuff. I love doing that. It's very comfortable. They're silver underwear and shirts. They're antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. That helps me a lot during my workout. So I bought a bunch of stuff there. I hope you guys go check it out. The, the website was very easy to use. I actually love the socks probably more than anything because they stay up. Uh, when I have a hard time, you put socks on and they, they roll down a little bit. That doesn't happen with Mack Weldon. So for our listeners here on the podcast of champions, you're going to get 20% off your first order. Go to MacWeldon.com and enter promo code POC at checkout. That's MacWeldon.com promo code POC. I hope you check it out. I think you're going to love the stuff just like I do. Now available in more homes than the Pac-12 network. We are the podcast of champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online. And here he goes, Miles Jack! And I'm Ryan Abraham from uscfootball.com. Liner, going to try to sneak it ahead. Touchdown, SC! We are the Podcast of Champions. Welcome, everyone, back to the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And I'm Ryan Abraham from uscfootball.com, the USC site on the 24-7 Sports Network, and apparently the only co-host who's not half asleep right now. Oh David gosh. Woods is in studio for the Podcast of Champions. This Do is, I sound half asleep? The, your your intro was had about as much energy <laughs> as... I'm on As East Coast time <laughs> on the West Coast. It isn't great. It's the evening. I'm struggling. Let's move on. All right. Uh, we we had a cool show for you today. We're going to talk right after we recorded the show. The biggest news of the Pac-12 offseason broke where Jim Levitt is out as defensive coordinator at Oregon. So we're going to talk Oregon football today, even though uh, spring ball hasn't started yet. It's starting up in a couple weeks, so we're going to Move on. We had ASU last week. We'll do Oregon this week. If you have any questions for us, we got a bunch this week. Even though it's been a short week, we still have a bunch of questions. So people are emailing us in uh, Pac-12 podcast at gmail.com. And they weren't uh, they weren't skipping on the, the typing letters. There's a lot of electrons were sent no, our way. And um, it's a good <laughs> thing we didn't tell them to ask us Oregon questions because I don't think we realized we were going to do Oregon until about 15 minutes ago. Yeah. Um, because we didn't remember to ask any of the Arizona State questions <laughs> last week anyway. I did some text, so we got a little bit. And I have a Chris Cartman update, too. I'll read you that uh, in, a f- in a few seconds. But if you want to call or text us, you can do that, 424 424- Five three two zero six seven eight. Our Twitter account. Uh, you can tweet us. We might tweet you back. I don't know. We'll see. We might look at it. It might not happen. At Pac Twelve Podcast, and of course our website Pac Twelve Podcast And go to iTunes. Subscribe us. Subscribe to the show. Rate us. Positive feedback. We love all that stuff, David. We really do. We really do. And I don't get enough from Ryan, so I need it from you people out there. Yeah, I, I need a more positive reinforcement for David. Um, real quick, Chris Cartman said, I texted him right before the show ended. So someone asked about the stadium. He said the new stadium is very nice. Top three in the Pac-12 overall experiences. So that's cool. They asked about the golf course. It will be mixed-use retail, commercial, and high-density high living with all the revenue going to fund uh, athletic facilities. So that's kind of interesting. ASU does it a little bit differently. Who knew? Someone else that does it differently, the Oregon Ducks. They blaze their own path. 
We are very lucky today. Eric Scopel, uh, he's the beat writer for Duck Territory. You can follow him on Twitter at Eric underscore Scopel. So E-R-I-K and Scopel spelled S-K-O-P-I-L. Eric, thanks for uh, joining the podcast of Champions. Thanks for having me on, living the dream. You know, this is a big honor for you, I'm sure. You know, this, no, <laughs> we, we do our best. Um, we Just because we do a show every week, we are the number one Pac-12 podcast out there. Because <laughs> It's sort of like being the number one Pac-12 network. <laughs> exactly. We're the only we're, ones. <laughs> we're the only ones that, that bother to do this every week. And uh, we, we're, we've been doing pretty good the last couple of weeks. We've been uh, uh, doing, you know, sharp episodes coming back quick. Before seven days are up, we're doing another episode. And uh, we, we write, like we said, Right before the show ended, or right after the show ended, this whole uh, Jim Levitt uh, news kind of broke. So while we're going to talk... Oregon Ducks. We need to know, and you guys broke the story, uh, Duck Territory broke the story, what what happened with uh, Jim Levitt, the highest paid assistant coach in the conference? Well, I think it's pretty clear based upon the success last season that this wasn't entirely performance-based. You know, the last time we saw Oregon defensively they they basically shut out michigan state in the red box bowl so it it is sort of a weird this doesn't quite compute kind of thing right um but you know i think there's some clashing going on behind the scenes and this has been fairly well documented uh between cristobal and jim levitt obviously both guys felt like they had an opportunity to, to you know replace willie taggart last year ultimately uh mario cristobal was selected and and jim levitt put in kind of a precarious situation here where he's working basically for a guy who used to be a peer who's now his boss, a guy who has less head coaching experience. There's also the weird matter of the team kind of like put together, you know, a push to, to promote Cristobal and Levitt's probably sitting there going like, wait, what about me guys? I, <laughs> I've also been coaching you guys. I'm also a coordinator. Um, and, and so I think kind of an odd situation there. I don't think they ever really saw eye to eye and kind of how things were going to be done. And yet, uh, you know, signing day came and passed, both of them, and Levitt was still employed, and it felt kind of like maybe they're going to kind of make it work for another year. Um, even though, it sh- we should mention, Jim Levitt had put his name pretty aggressively out there in, in kind of the, the coaching waters of, hey, I'm available, come talk to me. There were numerous head coaching vacancies that he was tied to, some coordinating vacancies he was tied to. Ultimately, none of those worked out. And I think they were kind of put in a tough situation here where, they, there's a clashing of personalities and yet you kind of, it's probably not going to work out, but you're also on the docket for a ton of a boatload of money to Jim Levitt, like you, like you said earlier. Um, and so Oregon, you know, I think kind of reached a boiling point and decided, Hey, let's, let's just end, let's split ways, try to do it as amicably as possible. Um, obviously the timing is kind of funky, but um, that's sort of what's happened. And I think you can expect in the next couple of weeks, your Keith Hayward, who's been um, a co-defensive coordinator for the last year, uh, led the safety group for Oregon for the last two, came over. He's a guy you're probably fairly familiar with at USC as well. Sounds like pretty good chances he'll be um, the next defensive coordinator replacing Jim Levitt. That has not been formally announced um, by the university, though. Usually when there's a coaching change immediately after signing day or, or soon thereafter, um, one of the big questions that kind of arises is, you know, was this something that was planned beforehand that was in the offing and then it just sort of, you know, didn't come out until after signing day. Do you get any feel for that? And maybe even beyond that, um, is there any impact with the guys who signed where some of them came expecting a Jim Levitt defense? And is anybody a little bit cheesed off after this? 
You know, it's interesting because that, that, that whole line of thinking makes a ton of sense. And on the outside looking in, you probably think that's got to be what it is. But I don't think Jim Levitt was a primary recruiter for a single player they signed. And there were probably only a handful of guys he was even really in that much contact with. He really had kind of taken a bit of a step back this cycle from a recruiting perspective. Sure, there were guys he targeted. I'm sure some of the inside linebackers, the position he had coached, he had pretty strong relationships with. But there, there it hasn't been a sense that that was really even a factor in the timing of it, which is, again, what makes the timing kind of strange because you figure if there are any recruiting implications, why not, you know, sever ties prior to February and, and make it clear that this is not some sort of, you know, grandiose plan to, to kind of get these guys, you know, signed and, and then kind of make some moves. But that's not what transpired from our perspective. And I don't think anyone out there um, can really definitively say or expect if anybody will look to move, but I, I don't think that they will. And, and frankly, the guys that uh, were signed at the positions uh, at, at linebacker, most of those guys are, are already enrolled, will be enrolling for spring practice here um, in a couple of weeks. So I don't think there's any concerns from a recruiting perspective, as weird as it sounds. Maybe there are some former players and they're already on the team that are a little bit ticked off. There was a bit of an outpouring of that following, but there also hasn't been from, from any of our perspectives uh, any sense that any key players will will seek a transfer because of this move. Um, so getting ready for spring football with the Ducks, uh, still a couple of weeks away, March 7th, I believe, uh, when they kick things off. Arizona State, you know, they'll be done with spring football by then. <laughs> their their spring, spring game is February 28th, if I'm not mistaken. Their um, winter game. The winter game, yeah, we were talking about this last week. Uh, what are some of the big storylines, I guess, going into the spring? I don't know if the defense is going to change much. That's probably a newer one. But what what are some of the things that uh, Oregon fans want to know heading into spring football? I, I, I do I do think the what happens after Jim Levitt narrative will be something we talk about a lot because you know this is going to be yet another defensive coordinator. Oregon's ran through a boatload of them over the last decade or so. Uh, and, and this is going to be another year where that's the case. So I, I think that will probably be one of the prevailing storylines we discuss. I think Kayvon Thibodeau is on campus. He will take part in the spring. Number one rated recruit, Oregon is signed in program history, second rated um, by 247 Sports, uh, a guy that I think Oregon fans are very excited about how he looks. You know, you know, there are going to be six to 12 freshmen up here for, you know, part of or all of spring. So I think this freshman class in general, but especially Kayvon Thibodeau, are, are guys people are going to be excited to to kind of get their first glimpse of and, and, and kind of see what the future, you know, because, you know, Oregon right now, the success has been pretty moderate compared to previous years. Obviously the Chip, Kelly, Chip Kelly era doesn't compare to this, but, uh, you know, from a recruiting perspective, that's kind of where they've been able to sell the fan base on. Hey, we're recruiting at a better level than ever before. We're bringing in more five and four-star prospects than ever before. And now I think there's going to be some desire for some immediate return on that, whether that's, you know, this season, a new, you know, a higher number of guys contributing or whatnot. But I think people want to see this spring, this recruiting class kind of out in the field and what they could provide. And then just, just from a team perspective, I think people are, are curious about the wide receiver position, which was a position which was pretty well documented from an Oregon perspective was, was not a very good one last year. The only player that was pretty recognizable and, and, and kind of that was consistent was Dylan Mitchell and, and he elected to go pro. So there's some big question marks at that position. And Obviously, with, with Justin Herbert back for his senior season, you've got the quarterback. The question is, do they have the receivers around him? I know um, uh, when I was watching Oregon towards the end of the year, it seemed like Jalen Red was showing flashes of being, you know, maybe a slot type guy or somebody who can take a little bit of that pressure off. Who are some of the candidates that you think can maybe 
take on number one receiver, number two receiver, number three receiver? I, th- I think Jalen Red will be a guy who who they do rely upon. Uh, he he will typically plays in the slot, so he's not one of those outside guys. But he was a guy that I think towards the end of the season, you're right, really came along, and and you kind of saw the upside there. As far as outside guys go, they just picked up a grad transfer from Jawan Johnson, Penn State. Uh, he, he's had some pretty solid seasons for the Nittany Lions in the past. He's going to be eligible right away, but won't be here for the spring. Um, that's certainly a name I think Oregon fans are excited about, or at least cautiously optimistic. Uh, they brought in a grad transfer last year from Wake Forest and Tabari Hines, and he played all of like two games. And, and he, there were similar expectations that he was going to come in and be a difference maker, and he wasn't. So I think some question marks on kind of how that's going to play out. But a couple of guys coming back, Brennan Schooler, John, uh, Johnny Johnson started and played quite a bit the last two years. Neither were very consistent. And then it's a bunch of true freshmen that they, you know, they brought in, I think, three of the 10 highest rated wide receiver signees in program history. Um, all three of those guys are guys that have a chance to play right away. Micah Pittman, Lance Wilhoyt, Josh Delgado. Those are three names I think Oregon fans are really excited about because these are some of the, again, the highest rated receiver recruits Oregon has ever brought in. So I think there's some optimism from that regard. But Again, there aren't a lot of proven commodities. So there are, I think, just a lot of, okay, is, who's it going to be? And, and is there enough around Justin Herbert for this offense to kind of take the steps um, that they need to take? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Justin Herbert a couple of times. I hear he's pretty good. Uh, the fact that he's coming back, you know, that's a it's a huge boost uh, for this program. And I think even with Herbert in the in the lineup last year, there just seemed the offense seemed to struggle a bit at times. What did it mean to have a guy like, Herbert coming back, and how does that change this offseason, the offseason workouts in spring, knowing you have your veteran quarterback that a lot of people thought would could be the first overall pick in the draft? Well, I think obviously it's huge from a national perspective because he is becoming or already has become kind of a household name. People know who he is. People want to watch the highlights. You know, people, when you attach, you know, possible first-round pick to a, a player – he immediately draws eyeballs from all these people who are maybe not regional college football fans or college football fans at all, but NFL fans. And they go, Oh, Justin Herbert, that's a guy I need to know about. And they go and educate themselves about him. And so that's a big aspect of it. But, you know, just from, in terms of the immediate success, if he doesn't come back, I don't know what they do at quarterback. They probably go the the grad transfer route because ultimately the the quarterbacks still on the roster that were backing him up this last season have very little experience and experience they did have. Uh, was not particularly encouraging talking about Braxton Burmeister last year filling in when, when Herbert went down, that was not a great, um, a great stretch of games for the ducks. Uh, Burmeister has since transferred after Herbert announced he was coming back. So um, I think a, a big, in a lot of ways, I think, you know, I think it keeps them in the national discussion uh, right now. I think a lot of people have Oregon surprisingly as kind of the prohibitive favorite in the PAC 12. I don't know if that's warranted or not, but, um, I think him having him back gives him kind of a lot of clout and also makes him avoids what could have been a, a disastrous offseason and possible season if, if they didn't have a clear replacement for Herbert because really they would have had to, I think, scramble to figure things out. Um, I know, uh, you know, any quarterback's only about as good as his offensive line. And last year, Oregon did have some injuries. I know um, Penny Sewell, uh, the young left tackle, was out for. I think it was a good half of the season, um, and I think there are a couple other nicks and bruises. What is kind of the state of the offensive line heading into spring? Because I know, I think heading into last year, it was thought of as a deep group. That was kind of tested last year. What, where, where do things stand uh, heading into spring? Well, they, they do return all five starters on the offensive line, and, and three of those guys in, in Shane Lemieux, Calvin Throckmorton, and Jake Hansen um, will be starting for their fourth consecutive year. So it's an innocent, experienced, experienced group. The other 
two expected starters. You've already mentioned Penny Sewell, really high expectations for what his ceiling is as a six foot six, 350 pound guy that moves really well. Uh, and then uh, Dallas Warmack started at right guard. Uh, he's a grad transfer from Alabama uh, last year. Uh, he'll be back again. So there's a lot of, I think, optimism in terms of what this group can provide from a depth perspective. You know, it, it's a situation where, again, a lot of guys coming back, but some of these recruits that are coming in, even guys that redshirt or, or played sparingly next year, I think there's the sense that there could be some competition for some of these starting jobs, even, even with guys that have started for, you know, handfuls of season here. Uh, the position feels like it's being elevated. And I think that's another thing you asked earlier about things people are excited about going into spring practice. I think that's another one is, is kind of what, you know, can this group take that next step and just how good can they be? Because, you know, off season is the time where people come up with all sorts of wacky narratives. And one of the ones we've seen on our side is, could this be the best offensive line group in program history? And I think there's going to be a lot of eyes wondering this spring, could that be the case? And if that's the case, who's the starting five going to be? Yeah. Um, what's the transfer portal activity been like? Because uh, we, we, we had an internal email and what Matt Prem was saying that Oregon likely needs a couple more guys to transfer out just to get under the, the 85 limit. So it seems like Oregon's pushing the, the 85 limit right now. Was there any incoming guys from the transfer portal? Do you expect more to go out? What's, what's been happening there? Yeah. So I think that when they signed everybody this last month here, uh, that put them at 89 and I actually asked Cristobal, you know, straight up, how, what were they going to do? And he, he was kind of skirted the question. They basically said, Oh, we'll, we'll find a solution for that. We have a, a formula. We think it's going to work out well. Um, and we'll get that to you guys when it happens. Well, it's been a couple of weeks and no one else slept. So um, <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what the plan is. I don't have an answer for you on that, but they will have to get creative a little bit here. Um, I think with the addition of Jawan Johnson, they're now at 90. So that's five players that need to kind of move off the program. And there's no indication right now that anyone that has signed is, uh, you know, academically ineligible or, or is that, or that's even a concern. So if, I think it's more than likely going to have to be, like you said, the transfer portal. And um, I, I don't necessarily know exactly who it's going to be, but I expect that maybe this spring, maybe um, after, right after the spring, maybe this summer, there's going to be four or five guys that are going to have to leave simply because there's not enough room. And, and you know, I don't know if that's uh, exactly the way you want to go about running a program, but uh, that's the way I think things are going to, are going to play out. And, and I think that's maybe potentially unfortunate, but sort of the harsh realities of it, because Oregon right now is in a situation where they're kind of oversigned and they're going to have to find some ways to get back under 85 by the time they start the season. Yeah. Uh, being 90, I, I mean, <laughs> I, I've seen some teams be at 87, 88 where yeah. the, you know, and they've got a pretty good idea of a couple of guys they're going to shed. And I'm sure they have a couple of guys in mind, but getting, Getting, right. getting five guys shed by the uh, yeah. by by August might be a little. Sometimes bit you don't know too. There's guys that are just gone. That you go to spring practice and you don't know. You know they just retired. Yeah. They didn't. They're not in the transfer portal. They just decided to quit football. They've, they've been retired. Yeah, they've been. You know, things like that can happen. Uh, but you, like like you don't have to. It's a headcount sport. So it's other sports. You can have half a scholarship. They don't do that in football. You count for the whole year. I think it starts. In the beginning of August, I forget what the exact thing is, but you have to be at, you know under eighty five by right. that, you know. So they got time, but it might be a little creative. There might be some people that wanted to be on the football team and were asked not to come back. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So you you touched on um, expectations and just kind of what because uh, Oregon's getting 
some top 10 love um, heading into some of the heavier preseason rankings, um, but certainly top 15 by pretty much everybody at this point. Obviously, the Justin Herbert effect. Um, recruiting class. The recruiting know. class, yeah. the whole deal. Um, what The feel around the program, and you mentioned it earlier, just that people – you know, they're going to want to start to see a payoff here soon. What what does that look like? What do you think is going to be, I mean, obviously sight unseen with spring. We don't know, you know, obviously catastrophe could strike, people could get hurt, whatever. But sight unseen at this point, where do you see this season needing to be for Cristobal to kind of keep in line with where the program expectations are headed right now? Well, I, I think they have to really contend and, and be in the conversation for the Pac-12 North going into the last couple of weeks. Uh, you know, early on after they beat Washington, there was obviously some senses last year that that was a possibility. And yet they turn around and, and they really, really struggle on the road, losing games at Washington state, at Arizona and at Utah. Um, some of them in really ugly fashion. Um, and I think this year you, you want to, I think obviously you don't want to lose games like you did at Arizona where you just get blown out by a team that's not even bowl eligible. Um, you want to avoid those, but I, I do think that for this season to be considered a success, they're going to have to at least be in the conversation going into the last couple of weeks. They're going to have to be improved in conference, you know, six, seven wins at the minimum. I think probably get to seven or eight and people are going to feel you know, pretty good about things. Um, and, and I think you're going to have to see some improvements on offense. We talked about how they made a move off Jim Levitt, but funny enough, there have been probably more fan outcry for Marcus Arroyo, the current offensive coordinator, maybe not to be relieved of his duties, but to, you know, find a way to change what they're doing just because it was a fairly uninspiring offense to watch this season. And so I think those are two things people are going to want to see is just a little bit more competitiveness in the conference, fighting for a conference championship. And then if this offense, which has obviously been the staple of Oregon football now for over a decade, probably longer than that, um, it, it needs to feel a little bit more like Oregon football of old in terms of, they can go out and put up 45 on, on anybody or that feels at least like a reality because there were times this season where you went into the weekend and they're playing Utah and you're going, maybe they're going to get 21 points and that's about kind of max. And that puts a lot of pressure on the defense. For sure. Um, okay, so Dave mentioned we didn't really know we were going to talk work until, you know, 15 minutes or so before. Well, yeah, we, we set this up maybe an hour. We're really good at homework and preparation. Yeah. That's really the hallmark of our show. But before, like right before we called you, we sent out a tweet or I sent out a tweet like, hey, we're going to we're gonna talk Oregon this week. Do we have any questions? We have a few Twitter questions. There might be some snark in there. Would you like to uh, answer a few of them from the, from the readers out there, listeners? Uh, let's do it. Hit me with them. All right. We got first one is uh, from Tom, Mr. TPSM. What's the allure of hiring all these assistants from Washington State? Was there a bunch of assistants from that, Washington State? I don't know. Yeah, they've, they've now three straight years hired somebody from Washington State. Uh, Ken Wilson, the most recent one, at an outside linebacker. Um, Joe Salaveda, the defensive line coach, and, and Jim Mastro, the running back coach, also from Washington State previously. And actually, they had a prior to that, they hired David Yost uh, to come in and, and coach the quarterbacks. This is back in Mark Calvert. So I think it's actually been four straight years where they've dipped into a uh, Pullman for pull uh, a coach. So it's become, it's become kind of a recruiting hotbed for, for the Oregon coaching staff. Um, and I think it's, it's mostly been, you know, connection based. And it's probably a bit of a domino effect of you get a couple of those guys on staff and, and uh, you know, an outside linebacker coach leaves and they go, you know, you know, do you know of anybody that would be good? And they go, Oh, well, I could be both coached with Ken Wilson at Washington state. And he's a pretty good coach. I think it's as simple as that. I don't think there's anything, uh, devious and nefarious where they're they're trying to pick on the Cougars uh, who have 
you know, ironically been picking on them on the field. So um, <laughs> I, I don't think there's anything to it really, but it's just maybe been kind of the way things have played out. And yeah, Oregon does have about a third of its coaches right now are, are former Washington State assistants. So I, sh- I should I should preface all of these questions with um, we do have a very strong subset of Washington listeners and yeah. many of them chimed in with questions. <laughs> so there's a there is a deep level of snark with this. This is a two parter from two different people, but I'm going to touch on them both here. First question uh, from VAJP um, on Twitter: How many torn bicep injuries will the Ducks suffer this year? Uh, hashtag Flex Friday every day. And then the next question is. Uh, and this one is from Coke greater than Pepsi or Coker underscore UW on a scale of one to 69. How concerned are you about the form used in the flex Friday felled propaganda videos? I'll take your answer <laughs> off the air. <laughs> Maybe you should explain what flex, uh, flex Friday boy, is first. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Oregon's uh, strength and conditioning coach, uh, Aaron Feld has, has promoted uh, this thing on Friday. We're basically, numerous players are in the weight room with their shirt off and they, and they flex and say flex Friday. And I think it's meant to be some way to promote kind of the, the, you know, the weight training and, and kind of get things going virally and, uh, and kind of make an impact on social media. Um, I, you know, I'll be honest. I, I, I don't really see the value in flex Friday. I think it's something cool for the guys and, and probably they enjoy it. And I'm sure the recruits probably get a kick out of it. And there are probably a certain contingent of the fan base that really enjoy it too. I, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm never going to get totally on board a bunch of guys, you know, flexing with their shirts off. And that's not really the, the thing that I want to watch. But, um, yeah, I, as far as the injuries suffered, I, I hope the answer is zero. But uh, <laughs> I guess you never know. They do do a lot of flexing. They got about probably 12 guys each week <laughs> on the videos uh, working on their flexes. Interesting. Um, we did. Thanks for Utah man in, in the ATL. Uh, his Twitter is Matt Z1439 says, uh, do you need someone to remind you to ask the submitted questions? Like, no, we didn't. <laughs> we did it on our own this Utah time. man. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for that. This one's from uh, Natasha. Uh, again, Mont- again, Montlake Natasha. Montlake Natasha being, that's a suburb of, is that a suburb of Seattle? Is that? That's or, just, I think it's like kind of a, I think that is just kind of technically where UW is. Montlake, okay. Uh, okay, so this is uh, from Natasha. What is Chris, uh, what in Cristobal's 36 and 52 record inspires confidence? Why are the Duck fans happy with the fourth in the north with Herbert and the objectivity, according to advanced metrics, easiest schedule since the conference expanded to 12? Arroyo retained, but Levitt canned. This coach staff equals Ron Zook. Uh, so Natasha, not a big fan of what the Ducks are doing, but what, what do you say? Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, clearly not a big fan based upon the comments. Uh, you know, I, I think a lot of those things are probably warranted concerns. And, and, and frankly, you know, Cristobal, nine wins in the first season feels pretty good, especially when they won four games not too long ago. But I think there are some things that he needs to, you know, to prove. Obviously, the recruiting stuff has come, I don't want to say easily, but it's come pretty immediately. Number seven ranked recruiting class kind of speaks for itself. And, and that gets the offseason stuff going. But like I said earlier, I, I do think that there will be, I think there's still a, a pretty large contingent of Duck fans that are kind of uncertain, uh, kind of how, how bought in they should be. I think they feel like with what happened with Willie Taggart, who also recruited really well and took off and maybe didn't have the on-field success, there's some concern maybe that, not that he's Willie Taggart, but maybe this all, won't all work out as, as, it, as it hopefully will. Um, but I think there's there's still going to be some optimism just going forward based upon the way they have recruited you know in, in the first place so i think it's kind of a complicated answer but um from, from my perspective i think most of the optimism just is 
cautious right now. I don't think there, maybe there are some, but from my perspective, most of the fans that are really uh, are kind of just waiting kind of to see what's going to happen over the next couple of seasons. One, one of the things real quick, um, our friend Bruce Feldman is pretty familiar with uh, Mario Cristobal. And uh, I think he's, he comes to his defense a lot when you're talking about the early FIU years where it's like two thirds of that team were freshmen. I mean, they were playing, uh, I think they played their games in the, the Miami orange bowl that year. I mean, there was a lot of weird right. stuff. He, they felt they re- rebuilt that. So if you just look at his record there, like, oh, that sucked. Like, well, it was kind of rebuilding a program from the ground up. But just, you know, just a little for our, for Natasha and some of the other dog fans. These trolls, these hardcore <laughs> trolls out here. Um, I'm going to skip Michaels because it seems like it's in the similar vein. Um, the dog pen. I mean, it's again, it's a just troll. All we're doing is like being surrogate trolls of you right now, Eric. So, you know, take it for what it's worth. I get the sense, yeah. Yeah, so this is at the dog pen. Uh, Why were only Washington fans responding to this tweet? I mean, we only gave us 15 minutes. Maybe this is like their their break or something. They're just triggered by this. Um, Does Herbert lock down that elusive All-Pac-12 honorable mention this year? Man. I would would imagine he would. I, I was actually sort of surprised he wasn't this last year though it wasn't his best season um but the but, but if you just look at who was honored the last this last season i think it's there's some opening there with with jake brown leaving at washington um obviously washington state they'll have to find a new quarterback there you know kj costello at stanford probably a strong competitor right. who, know, who knows what's going to happen with khalil tape but herbert feels like kind of a favorite to at least be recognized somewhat this year sort of strange he hasn't been already yeah uh, we got one from randomly logical, just sort of in general. Um, this is that it's you know Oregon is the team du jour. We talked about that a little bit. There's you know because of the recruiting class, because of Justin Herbert coming back, there's going to be this hype train about it, and I that's probably what the dog fans are really upset about because you know Washington looks like they could be on you know the birth another playoff berth, but everyone's talking about Oregon. Is there talk about how to avoid that? you know, the hype train that, you know, everyone's talking about this team and they just fall short of expectations. Like basically what the Washington fans are thinking, but you know, is there, is there a lot of talk about that? Like, Hey, this isn't, you know, there's going to be a lot of hype around us, but we have to prove it on the field. No, I certainly think that's the case. And and if you do, I know Crystal probably from other fan bases has the reputation of being raw, raw, Mr. Recruiter, but you you talk and you kind of listen to what he has to say. And a lot of it is, you know, it, it, he feels, especially compared to Willie Taggart, much more substance as opposed to flash. I'll put it that way. Yeah. And then uh, there's one more from uh, at Utah Punt Team, which isn't a troll. So you can count on Utah fan. <laughs> they actually said the two right. non trolly things in this entire Utah rundown. Fans. Yeah. Um, what's the best college bar and brewery in Eugene? Well, okay. This is hard for me because I didn't go to college uh, at Oregon. Uh, I went to college up in Spokane, so I, I haven't really lived out the college experience um, in Eugene. I know Rennie's Landing was something that was popular um, a okay. while ago, so I'm probably the, literally the wrong person to ask as somebody who a doesn't really drink and b doesn't never went to college here. Oh, yeah, that's probably bad. So <laughs> what you're telling us is when you have you on the program again next time, it should be nothing but trolls from Washington fans. <laughs> yeah, let's yeah, let's just make it all Washington trolls. Let's do that. <laughs> Do you happen to be a Grateful Dead fan? <laughs> well, this red we did punts for Utah. They wanted to, they wanted us to compare each Pac-12 team to a Grateful Dead song. So I don't. I'm I, I I know exactly one Grateful Dead song. Yeah, like Touch of Grey. Touch of like Grey is the only well, one. The I only know. hit like that was. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't know if, if you're a huge Deadhead, then you might be good at this. 
Eric, but if you're like us, probably not. Not a big deadhead. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably before your time, too. All right. Eric Scopel, follow him on Twitter, Eric underscore Scopel. Does a great job uh, covering the beat for the Ducks uh, at ducktterritory.com and did a great job here breaking down the, the Ducks. We appreciate it, Eric. Well, I appreciate you guys. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Eric. All right. Well, great stuff from Eric. Uh, before we jump into the show, we got a lot of questions, David, we got to get to. I want to tell all our listeners about Mint Mobile. There's a lot of things in life that aren't right. Carpet in the showers, eating dip with your fingers, chunky style milk. I don't want chunky milk if you saw that in the Super Bowl commercial. But paying too much for your phone bill, that is not right. But thanks to Mint Mobile, you don't have to overpay for wireless anymore. They reimagined the wireless shopping experience and made it, made it easy and online only, which means they can pass significant savings directly to you. And for a limited time, they are offering two months free when you buy your first month, $20 for three months of wireless, really easy to switch over to Mint Mobile. And it's so much cheaper than whatever you're using now. This amazing deal is only going to be here for a limited time though. So $20 off, gets you three months of wireless service, eight gigabytes of 4G LTE data every month, plus nationwide talk and text unlimited. So you can put your right in your phone, any Mint Mobile plan, stick the little chip in there. You'll be good to go. Keep your old phone number, all your existing contacts, all of that. And Mint Mobile runs on the nation's fastest, most advanced LTE network. And if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with their seven-day money-back guarantee. So to take advantage of this, Mint Mobile's offering this amazing deal. Do it now before it's gone. Pay 20 bucks for your first month of wireless and get another two months free by going to mintmobile.com slash champs, as in podcast of champions. Mintmobile.com slash champs. Three months premium wireless service for just 20 bucks. Mintmobile.com slash champs. So hope our users, you know, your cell phone's too expensive. Please try it out. Let us know. Tweet us. Let us know what you think about Mint Mobile. That was a beautiful read. Thanks, man. Honestly, just... Just you, crushed. Blew, you blew me away. <laughs> Honestly, I'm, I'm just sitting here. I'm I'm seeing Ryan in action for the this, first time in, in quite a while now, for months really. Right, and it's just it's it's just poetry in motion. David Wood it, Woods in studio. I have yeah. to have to move my arms while I'm talking. Like, I know. Do, do you do that too? Like if you're reading or I thought you were at one point when we were interviewing Eric. I thought you were doing a jacking off motion, <laughs> um, but no, you were just like talking and gesticulating wildly. But it was great. Um, and uh, normally I would be the one doing jacking off motions if somebody's going on too long. <laughs> Um, but Eric wasn't. Eric actually did a great job. I thought Eric was wonderful. I was thinking, you know, this is the first time we talked to Eric, and I'm yeah. not going to say that you might have come in a little skeptical, but you might have come in a little skeptical. I, I always, I'm very skeptical of strangers. <laughs> um, it's something I learned as a young boy. Stranger danger. And, you know, you just don't talk to strangers. <laughs> and so when we have a strange guest on the podcast, and that's anybody who I don't know, you know, I'm a little skeptical. But Eric blew us away as well. Yeah. And I thought he was amazing. Yeah, so the I mean the whole thing about the Ducks national rank uh, in the recruiting rankings number seven according to the twenty four seven Sports Composite, number one in the Pac twelve. Justin Herbert coming back, it's a big story. But this whole I'm curious how much you know having the top defensive coordinator, you know, it's at least by salary the top assistant really in the conference, losing Jim Levitt, how much that I don't want to say derails things, but how much it impacts things going forward. I mean, I think a, a lot and. You know, I didn't, Eric, and I think this is, you know, we don't know how much of that was a power struggle and how much of it was, you know, sometimes head coaches can have ego. Um, Yes. Obviously, Pete Carroll had a little bit of that with his assistants over time at USC where it started to 
maybe the staff got a little bit worse over time <laughs> because he started 100%. to be a, it started to be a little bit more of an ego play for him. Um, I think that's happened in Seattle too. Yeah, know? I think that's happened there, and he started to just go with guys he knows. Yeah. Um, and I think that happens with a lot of people in every profession, but in these kind of autocratic autocratic professions, like essentially being a head coach, it's the <laughs> one. It's the like few legal di- dictatorships in, uh, <laughs> in 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 the United States. Um, it uh it can get very um insular very quickly. Yeah. So, It'll be interesting to see if that is playing into it at all or if maybe Levitt truly was that hard to work with or was just there was too much friction there. Yeah. Um, what How Cristobal works and promoting from within is something we've often talked about on this show. And and it's good to do it when you're successful. Like that's a that's a decent enough thing to do. Um, if you've got a really successful program that's been doing it for a while, um, I'm a little bit more skeptical of promoting from within when it's. You know, they were an eight, eight and four program. They weren't blowing anybody away last year. Right. So promoting Keith Hayward and having him take over um, defensive coordinator duties. I'll be interested to see it. Yeah, I like Keith a lot. Like when I when he was at USC, just, you know, personally, you know, um, he was a cool dude. I, I guess they made him co-offensive coordinator anticipating something like this potentially yeah. could happen. Uh, I mean, defensive coordinator, offensive coordinator, but um, whatever. Know. He can do it all. Yeah. To my experience, you know, it, it, you always got to, you need a chance. You know, it's good to give coaches a chance, but this is a, this is a team that's going to have a lot of hype around it. You know, did you want to bring in an experienced defensive coordinator? I mean, not that they still could, I guess. Right. I mean, we don't, it's not official that he's been named, but um, for continuity, I get it, but you know, we'll see. He might be like the greatest defensive coordinator ever, or, you know, when you're, you're, it's your first time doing something. There's usually some bumps in the road. Yeah, Absolutely. We, we have, you know, dive into some questions. Yeah, uh, we got this. There's a graphic here for Pac-12 uh, uh, mediocrity. What? Yeah, medi- you know, mediocrity. What is mediocrity? Me- mediocrity spreads. Mm-hmm. The Pac-12's mediocrity spreads. Mm-hmm. Okay, their state of being being mediocre has spread. Yes. Um, this is from Tristan, a uh, Stanford from Stanford. This is no, a, no, no, but from Rochester, New York. Right, but uh, the the email, yes, well, yeah, the yep. email address is Stanford. Maybe an employee of Stanford. Maybe we'll learn more in this email. Who yeah, knows? a listener recently <laughs> pointed out that in a previous email, I mistakenly identified Oregon State as being doesn't sound like a Stanford grad if he's mistaking anything. Right, uh, mistakenly identifying Oregon State as being less than an hour's drive from Boise State, and I'd say Boise and the, yeah, you really hit that. I tr- you know, yeah. we try to do it. Uh, just I, I, know I, actually, I actually just forgot that we had that entire conversation <laughs> on this show two weeks ago. And I'm like, wow, you really did hit that. It's like Family Guy when uh, they're like ruin, you know, instead of like, yeah. and Brian's like, what are you talking about, Stewie? Uh, he just pronounces things just to annoy. I don't understand friend. any Family Guy references. Oh, you don't, oh really? No. Oh, horrible I, show. Really? You don't God like awful. it? Oh, okay. Non-jokes. Okay. You don't like it? Okay. Just observations, like just non-jokes, okay. like non-funny. I got to like the fun. But um, <laughs> do you like Bob's Burgers? I haven't watched it. It's really fun. I think you would like that. That's smart. Like there's some really good humor in that. Okay. Upon checking my sources, I found that when I was asking Google Maps for directions from Boise State to <sighs> Oregon State, I was actually give, it was actually giving me directions from Boise State to, quote, Treasure Valley Community College <laughs> in Ontario, Oregon. Sadly, it appears... The mediocrity of the Pac-12 has spread beyond football and now includes companies run by alumni of Pac-12 schools as Google's founders went to Stanford. To be safe, from now on, I will only use navigation apps from companies 
run by graduates of SEC schools. <laughs> I think you're not going to be able to use any because they're most likely all packed off schools. Tristan in Rochester, New York, and it apparently is a 57-minute drive from Boise State University to Oregon State University, um, according to this, 58 miles. So, yes, under under an hour to get from the two schools. Yeah, from Boise State to Treasure Valley Community College. Um, yes. No, uh, it was longer. No, before, remember, we said, uh, someone said, no, it's not. It's definitely not an hour. He just got finished <laughs> saying that it's an hour between Boise State. Anyway, we're moving on. We're moving on from this. But it, like, it's showing an hour on his right, app. He's, he's demonstrating yes. that Google Maps shows it wrong. That's what he's demonstrating <laughs> right there. Honestly, it's late. Not for Ryan, but for me. But it's Ryan's fault. Um, not bad. All right. Are we on to Mike? Sure. Okay, suggestions and more questions. Oh, man, this looks long. Yeah, I'm ready. First off, thanks for indulging my silly car question from last week. I truly love the podcast. You guys have great chemistry and are very entertaining, informative. Thank you, Mike. Suggestions. Um, I wanted to suggest that you guys meet at Select Beer Store in Redondo Beach. You guys seem to like beer, and this place is a true gem in the South Bay. You mentioned on the podcast that Dave would be in town for next week's edition, so just wanted to throw that suggestion out there. Well, we didn't do that. Um, It's a very unique beer store. All right, so this is just an advertisement for Select Beer in Redondo Beach. Uh, It's a very unique beer store. They have several taps for pours, or you can pluck something out of one of the many coolers and pay for single cans, bottles, no corking fees on Wednesdays. Semi-related, I think it would be cool if you did a listener's event where we could meet up and have beer and commiserate about the complete shit show that is the Pac-12. Maybe next time I come to town, I give Ryan more than like, I don't know, <laughs> 72 hours notice. And we can actually work something out where we maybe do that. Because I think we the last time we tried to do a live thing, it was very early on with the show. And we got like, I don't know, it was like 15 people out. Yeah, but it, was, it, it, it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. Um, but I think if we did it now, we might get like. Yeah, I, I don't think it would be that much more, but it'd probably be like 25, 30. Yeah, it depends. In the area. Yeah, and I've been to the Select Beer Store. It's very cool. It's next to one of our favorite Mexican restaurants, the uh, Riviera Grill. I, I asked David if he wanted to go out to, to dinner afterwards. We could have gone down there and had a beer, but, you know, he's kind of a... I'm, I'm, I'm a dad. <laughs> I, I am, he's got to go to dad duties. I'm such a dad. Um, but I I offered. But he know. did, he did, and I, I, I turned him down like the... <laughs> Awful person I am. All right. You ready for questions? Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, he had he had more. Okay, oh, yeah. yes. Do you put any weight into ESPN's FPI rankings? They have UCLA as number 21. Uh, I'm hoping this isn't widely accepted. I was hoping to get some soft targets in Vegas this summer on the Bruins futures over under Pac-12 champ. Um, I put some weight into it. Um, I think number 21 is drastically overrating UCLA. I think it's basing a more on... I think they do something similar to what like S&P plus does. Um, but I think there might be more weight on like past performance, like the last five years. Uh, if I'm remembering. So it's like a lot of Jim Morris stuff is involved. In a that. lot of it. And they're recruiting from those cycles. And there has been quite a bit of attrition that I don't think a mathematical formula is going to take into account. But I was doing, I was doing an attrition analysis for a story that is probably going to come out on bro sometime this week, but UCLA lost something like two guys from 2016 to 2017. And then from 2017 to 2018, it was like 32. Whoa. Just transfer, 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 transfer. 
Um, and that might be between the end of 2017 and right now, but they've lost a ton of guys before their eligibility has been up. And I don't know if that's getting factored into a ranking system like that um, because it's just hard to do. So I would short anything that has UCLA as a top 25 ne- team next year. Um, I do think if you can, if I'm giving out betting advice, um, right now, sight unseen spring, um, and I will probably be out for a couple of spring practices this year, but sight unseen, I would say I would hit like an over five and a half. I think there'll be a bowl team this year. Um, just, I, I think Kelly had him rolling a little bit by the end of the last year. So I think that would probably be a good thing. But if they're, I mean, if the over-under is set at six and a half, I wouldn't touch it again. Yeah. That's, I mean, 21 seems pretty high, but, you know, we'll see. With the, the great recruiting class coming in probably, uh, you know, boost that a lot, right? Yeah, I would think so. It's just so good. It was, you know, 47th or whatever. So that, that'll, that'll really pay off. All right, we got off-topic questions from Mike. Okay. Dave, you grew up in El Segundo, right? If so, are there any great food drink places you can suggest? Any additional tips or interesting El Segundo tidbits would be appreciated as well. My wife and I want to live there at some point. If there's any obvious reasons to stay away, please let me know. Um, well, cost. It is expensive as hell now. Yeah. Um, my parents' house, which they bought in like 1989 for like, I don't know, 100000 bucks, is now... Just the lot itself is like worth nine hundred thousand or a million bucks. <laughs> um, like if they tear down the house, it's nine hundred thousand. If they don't tear it down, it's probably seven hundred. Um, <laughs> but if it's uh, it's extremely expensive, so keep that in mind. But I'm sure if you're thinking about it, you've already done some due diligence there. Um, it's a great place to raise family. It's a great place to go to school. The school district is very good, um, and all of that jazz. Um, they invest a good amount of money in it. Uh, they've been pretty friendly to business of the last, I don't know, 20 years or so. Um, it's been kind of a boom in terms of restaurants and bars uh, on Main Street. Um, my my familiarity with El Segundo is mostly informed by my childhood, though. So I don't know if I would be the best source for restaurants and people who work in El Segundo be the best. But I would say of the haunts from my youth, um, El Tarasco and La Paz are the best Mexican food. Um, and you can always get a good beer and some good bar food at the tavern on main, um, which is down at the end of main street. It's next to the really big gaudy rock and brews. Now, um, don't go there, go to the tavern. Um, and there's a bunch of good stuff on main street, but it's, uh, it's a happening little place now kind of incredibly, uh, cause El Segundo was always the sleepiest little town in, in, in the United States. It's not anymore. They've been very aggressive. Uh, the point up on it's, Basically, PCH and uh, and Rosecrans. Um, they've built that whole area out. It's really nice restaurants. Hop Dotty is one of my favorite little yep. burger beer places, and uh, uh, it's really good. There's a lot of great restaurants in there. Uh, cool shopping. They've they've really worked on it a lot. And now, uh, I was just at the the lakes in El Segundo this morning, hitting a few golf balls at the range. At some point, that range is going away. They're going to put a Top Golf in El Segundo. Oh so, my god, a Top Golf. So that's insanity um so it's definitely changed but like the downtown area where dave's talking about there's still like what's the purple orchid that's a cool little bar yeah. um there's a lot of cool stuff uh down there at the um, standard station a couple other ones they like have that. some breweries down there that are great like oh el, el segundo Se- brewery yeah, yeah i had their beer actually at a 
at a completely different event up in Westwood last time I was out on Thanksgiving and it was just El Segundo Brewery. And I'm yeah. Like, oh, it's so weird. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's apparently a very good brewery with, um, and you can go have tastings and do the whole thing, which is, again, this stuff is just bonkers. If you, if you had any familiarity with El Segundo, <laughs> like in the nineties, it is nothing like that right. anymore. Like there's actually like cool things to do now. It's just so weird. Cause we were always just, I mean, it's like anybody growing up anywhere, but we were always just trying to get the hell out of town when yeah. we were in high school. And now it's like, oh, wow, there's actually cool and fun stuff to do here. Yeah. Rock and Brews owned by like Gene Simmons is, is that yeah. a pretty cool place. So there's a lot of, there's, it's way different than what it was. Like when I lived like in Manhattan Beach in the 90s or whatever, like Elsa Goodo was sort of like, what is that? But now, I mean, it's a very cool place to be. Yeah. And then uh, Ryan. You grew up in Massachusetts, correct? If so, what town did you grow up in, and do your parents have thick accents? Is there a pub you can recommend in Boston or a place to eat uh, that I might have not been to? I don't I don't know what he's trying to say there. Anyway, any crazy St. Patty's stories you can share? When we lived there, Medford, Massachusetts, St. Patty's Day was a real eye-opener. Ha-ha. Uniformed cops drinking beer at the parade in Southie. Total madhouse. Anyway, thanks for what you guys do. Yeah, I, uh, so I lived in Massachusetts when I was from 11 years old till 18 till I moved for college. So um, I grew up in Milford, Massachusetts, but we moved from Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania, which had more of a almost like Kentucky-ish accent. They'd say things like Yun's guys in downtown and stuff. Warsh. Warsh. You know, you got to warsh things. Uh, we used to say, I remember gum bands instead of rubber bands, like I would deliver newspapers and stuff. We moved to Massachusetts when I was 11, so none of us had uh, accents. Everyone else, it was like, pack your cat, have it. It was just like, yeah. Um, very strange to get to, Maki, auntie, how you doing? And we're just like, what is going on at this place? So it kind of like, me- I guess, mellowed my, like, whatever Western Pennsylvania accent I had out. And then I moved to California and it just kind of went away. But it was, it was definitely an adjustment. I'm probably not great with, like, pubs in Boston. Like, my brother lives in Boston, but I don't go out there. I mean, a, a lot to know, like, oh, you should go check out uh, this, I mean, this stuff or whatever. But there's, you know, you go to the North End if you want to get Italian stuff. Yeah. There, there's a lot of cool stuff there. But um, I, I mean, I love the history. You go to the Freedom Trail and everything. But I just don't, I'm there once every other year. So I can't really, you know, I'm not going to be up on, I'm much more up on El Segundo than what I would be. Right. In well, Massachusetts. It's, it's, yeah. It's the best little town in America. Uh, this is from Shane. Two hidden, oh, two stars, hidden gronks, and actual advertisers, David David, and I guess Ryan too, but you, Dave, have been confirmed as our resident <laughs> math guy. <laughs> <laughs> Capitalist Ryan requires payment to read and decipher charts, despite being well compensated, money, money, money. To do ad reads for investment apps, uh, I don't know if we're. I don't. Th- <laughs> I don't know if well compensated <laughs> would necessarily cover it. it. It's definitely not enough to read sixteen tweets and eye charts from our it's buddy Andrew. Compensated, yes. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll leave the well out. My man Dave contributes labor for the good of the collective and our shared experience. Damn right, comrade. <laughs> Spot on last week in the observations of math curriculum, our students and maybe Hitler Day 2 desperately need one, statistics, two, real world, real world accounting, even just basic budgeting, banking, interest, credit, loan amortization, etc. Totally. And I would I would actually add um, much more useful than any pre-calc, calc, even like, I guess, basic geometry. But once you get into like sine, cosine stuff, you don't need that for anything <laughs> ever, ever. <laughs> Um, you but do. like trig, <laughs> any of that stuff, you really don't need it for anything where you're, unless you're like getting into engineering and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, but you need some Excel. 
like yeah do some excel work because like i find like i do like marketing stuff and i need excel like just comparing some spreadsheets you need that in so many different jobs and so many people don't have it so give me statistics give me real world accounting i think that's totally right and give me excel that's like the new home ec. Like you really need that. Yeah, I think you do. I, I remember, I think it was in eighth grade. We did like, they partnered us up and they, she made us have budgets. So we had like, here's your roommate. It was like, we were like out of college. Right. Here's your roommate. We actually went to the grocery store. You had to like price out what, and here was your budget and what kind of car could you get? You'd look in the one ads cause it wasn't internet at the time and, and figure out a car. I wanted to buy like a Lotus or something, but that was really helpful. I've always, I mean, I've just been pretty good at that stuff. I'm not like a write everything down, but I keep a lot of budget stuff in my head, but I, I think that helped, you know, yeah. and, and, but not a lot of people had that. No, so, definitely not weird. Uh, instead our kids get a weird conspiracy to keep Texas instruments in business and a fear of numbers. <laughs> I think it's a calculator reference. You guys crushed this topic last week, but I wanted to drop this number on the quote, look how many two stars were in the Super Bowl crowd. Since some of our group don't really get math and recruiting is all about hit rate. So he emphasizes this with each increased star, a player basically is four times more likely to hit. So based on early declarations for the NFL draft, just one measure of hit rate, guys that came in the 2016 class played early and made enough of an impact to declare. So if you're a five-star dude from that class, 14 out of 35 uh, were drafted. Were drafted. So 40% hit rate. Four-star goes down to 12%. Three-star down to 3%. Two-star, 0.6%. And if uh, not ranked, 0.002% or four out of over 200,000. That seems like a huge number. But uh, the biggest and Huffmans of the world uh, have no idea what might happen in the future. Who gets injured, has personal struggles, coaching issues, transfers. Who sits behind another five-star for three seasons? And they're still nailing it. The star system works, period. See you next year when a two-star player catches a pass in the Super Bowl, <laughs> Brain Wizards. <laughs> this is good. So, I like okay. Shane. Uh, question. Favorite. Why am I, am I like running out of uh, breath here? Favorite player personality. Uh, what player that you've covered had your favorite offbeat personality? Can you share a story? I'm thinking of the obvious in conference with Marshawn Lynch and Gronk, the human plastic vodka cup. But anybody, anybody, uh, anybody listens might not think of or don't get to really appreciate personality wise while they were in college, somebody who was unexpectedly funny or cool when you caught them in a casual setting. Um, you got anybody off the top okay, of your head? Okay. So like to see Juju Smith Schuster now have a big personality, like he was kind of like that in college. Um, he was fun to, to cover. Uh, I like the Lawrence Jackson who was out of Inglewood high school. He would talk about philosophy and all kinds of weird stuff. And he was like a go-to guy for us. I, I talked to, well, we still talk every once in a while. Um, and, uh, you know, really cool. Like you, you know, you think of this like six foot six guy from Inglewood, uh, you know, talking like the philosophers he likes. It's it pretty, it was always cool to have a conversation with him. And uh, Chris Hawkins, who was, uh, you know, played a lot at USC, didn't get drafted. He's a graduate assistant now. Was like a go-to interview guy. Always funny. Always say things that would probably get him a little bit of trouble. Um, but I, you know, some of the guys off the top of my head. Who was the USC guy who got in trouble jumping out the window? Uh, Josh Shaw. Josh Shaw was a great guy to talk to too. He was good. It was funny. Like he would have been. That was the weirdest situation ever. But like, if you had like your daughter was old enough, he's like the nicest guy you would see him out at the workouts having a tie on. Cause he was doing some internship and stuff. He was like, yeah, I'd want my daughter to date a dude like that. And then 
the weirdest shenanigans ever. And people would like get down on him. Like, dude, he's never like, I've never seen anything like that. You know, it's just this weird situation, but great to talk to. Yeah. yeah he was a great dude. Um, a lot of the scrubby dudes that you just never hear about are also really good. Like just generally like, yeah. people who never end up playing, they are working on other skills. So they're more talkative or whatever. Yeah. Um, so that often happens. But I mean, a lot of guys when I was in school were, were a lot of fun and, and guys like Bruce Davis, um, big time UCLA defensive end from the uh, Durrell era. Um, yeah, I mean, I always liked Josh Rosen. I, I was going to mention he him. A, yeah. He was a ton of fun to talk to because he would. He would say anything. Oh, man, he would drop. He would talk such shit about <laughs> everybody, everybody. He was so catty. It was so great to like. And this was Josh when he was like 15. Um, yeah. And because he was at peak, like, that was like whenever you read anything about Josh Rosen being like a huge, like, prima donna and an asshole, it was all based on how he was when he was 15. Yeah. Because he was like, yeah. I mean, he was a I'm really, <laughs> a really cocky 15 year old, but it was like really funny to hear him talk because he's also like a really smart kid. But yeah. Like just hearing him like rip on these other quarterbacks in his class and like, oh, no, that guy can't beat me. And guys in like older <laughs> classes too, like, oh, God, I'll, I'll go anywhere after that guy. I don't care. <laughs> um, but he was always really funny. And then when he mellowed out, actually, he was even like because he was a little bit more thoughtful. And I think he got a he got a little bit of his arrogance kind of sucked away um, his last year of high school. And then I think first year at UCLA kind of dissipated a little bit. And he was a lot more thoughtful and, and measured after that. And I think um, that made him even, you know, kind of better to talk to. But um, yeah, those are a few of the guys that come to mind. Yeah. Well, I'm sure they're missing a ton. I mean, I'm missing so many. And there's like somebody I can like almost place. I can almost remember the name, but I'm just like remembering conversations. And it's like, uh, yeah, yeah so. uh, I like talking to like Mike Juarez was fun to talk to. He was. Yeah. Mike is a really nice kid. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of who else. If there's anyone. Damian can- Alloway, um, who hasn't made much of an impact at UCLA. He was always really good to talk to. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of dudes. I mean, it's good. Like I like Khalil Tate. Um, oh, yeah. When I was talking to Khalil Tate in high school, he was always like, and he was always pretty frank and and down to talk about whatever too. Um, so he was We're good. kind of spoiled in Southern California. There's like, it, it, some of the interviews don't sound like some of the SEC interviews. The kids just, just do a real uh, they do do better job speaking unlike me right now but yes yeah no we, we are not we are not like paragons of this but generally the kids do a great job um no they've been and that's what i've generally found is like most of them like especially football basketball you run into more just kids who've i think they've just been kind of not corrupted i think that's kind of like an overblown word but just kind of they've been through it for so long that they're just like noticed when they're in eighth grade and they're just like done by the time you're really getting into them in junior year. But football players, I found that they're a little bit less controlled and they're, you know, just a little bit more open about the whole thing because I don't know, they haven't, they haven't been focused on since they're in eighth grade for the most part. Um, So most of these kids, I always, I kind of liked them all. Like they're not, you know, you got, you get this impression. I think that a lot of them are, you know, douchey or whatever, but most of the time they're just kids who are talking about, you know, all kinds of stupid stuff. I like the Anthony Thomas. I remember talking to him. Yeah. He was fun. He was um, fun. There's a lot of dudes, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, he had a PS, uh, the snarky intro about reaching more homes in the Pac-12 network is, I think, literally true. You guys have actual paying advertisers. The Pac-12 network does not. ZipRecruiter isn't dropping ads in between four straight profiles of gym- gymnasts. 
the guy who volunteers to do stats at UW and PSAs about kids with <laughs> autism. They're spending their money wisely on this stupid podcast. <laughs> Keep up the work. Your friend and compatriot, Shane. I love Shane. Good stuff, Shane. Shane's my guy. All right. Um, this is from Marcus uh, from Ice Cold 1906 from the Bro, bro-, bro Board. Hey, guys. First time, long time. That's the cool kids lingo, right? Uh, I was wondering if you could possibly keep mutilating that dead horse regarding Chip Kelly's recruiting strategy or how that really nice guy at USC should have been fired. Just kidding. I love your podcast. It's the perfect antidote for a long commute. I would like for you to settle a long time message board argument. I said toim. I didn't say time. I said toim. (laughs) That's where we are today. (laughs) Uh, Please rank the admissions requirements for football players at each Pac-12 school. Please make definitive the part where it's more difficult to get football players into UCLA than into USC. For some reason, the condom fans, I think he's, I don't know, he misspelled or whatever. It should be USC fans, but he said condom fans, which... I think uh, most <laughs> most people are fans of condoms, right? Sure, yeah. I mean, contraception, <laughs> good invention. Um, believe the football admission standards are similar. It's also cool to hear about the other schools' football admissions policies. Keep up the good work. All right, we'll start easy. Stanford. We really have to. Yeah. <laughs> this is okay. This is so. It obviously it changes. It's depending on each kid. It's not like oh this one. I, it's, I think so. It's, everyone is holistic to a certain extent. Um, yeah. What I would say is UCLA does have actual requirements where they have had to say no to kids who aren't just minimum qualifiers. I don't know. Has USC actually had to say no to people who meet the NCAA minimums? Yeah, there's. I mean, it happens. You see. I mean, I think remember at one point. Uh, this was Prop 48, guys. Was it Russell White or something? Like, yeah. w- he went to Cal. He didn't go to SC. Like, Cal's a harder admission to go get Cal, into. Cal uh, loosened things up. So UCLA used to be looser, and then there was this guy back in the 80s, I want to say, Billy Don Jackson, who, like, they did an expose, and it, they found out that he basically couldn't read, and he was at UCLA. Oh. And then they made things significantly stricter from that point. And there's been a long give and take with UCLA and its admissions since then. So I think I, I can't even I, it's not objective, but I'm pretty sure they're like a very distant number two after Stanford. Yeah, Stanford's the one. Right? Stanford yeah. is the one. Everyone else is kind of within, I think, probably a standard deviation of each other. Yeah. But UCLA does hold itself to a little bit higher. It does vary, though, depending on the coach, depending on what the kids have done the last like three years. If we've got if UCLA's got a good graduation rate and you know generally the kids are going to class, then they can maybe dip down a little bit more. Yeah. But if they don't, then suddenly they can't get guys in anymore. Um, and that's kind of a very ham fisted way of describing it because they do make it like this this is one area where it would be great to have calculus because that's basically what they're doing there. <laughs> um I know UCLA is they are like that. I don't think Cal is by any stretch. I mean, they've gotten guys in that I know UCLA couldn't get in, as you said, that USC couldn't get in. Um, Washington, I think they have some. Yeah. You, you don't hear a lot about it. Yeah. But th- you hear guys that are mostly this is what you hear. You hear, okay, this guy might have some grade problems. And then maybe a, a USC or UCLA or or someone like, backs off of them a little bit or they don't recruit them as hard, right. but they're waiting to kind of see if that gets better. Right. But I think there's other programs. I don't want to 
say anybody. The Arizona schools. You could say like Arizona State, like they're still going to be in contact or something like that. Right. So, but it's not like this. There's not some ranking. There's some black and white thing. It's different. And if it's one dude that you really, really want, and like Dave said, like graduation rates are out, you can get exceptions in too. And it's how many exceptions. I, I know some guys that UCLA has gotten in in recent years who were barely minimum qualifiers. And that's just when they're good enough, when they've got some yeah. other stuff, if you make the pitch right. And for UCLA, I know it's they put it before kind of a committee that it's like you got to massage the information and make the pitch. And, you know, you've got to you've got to prioritize the kids you want to do that for. Um, and I know they've had to do that for some guys in the past. But here my my broad overarching take is that none of this. I mean, it's a dumb debate and people who get into the thing <laughs> where they're like, oh, my school my school is much harder to get into. So that's, you know, it's so dumb. Like these kids all have so much tutoring help and all this stuff that like, if the program is well managed, look, I got through college, not going to class, not buying my books. Um, and it wasn't great, but if you did like a bunch of tutoring and you had help and you were going to class every day and like, and tutoring in college is like, they're not quite going to class for you and not quite writing the papers for you, but it's like the next thing over from that. And I just, I'm basically what I'm saying is there's no fundamental difference between a Stanford curriculum, like for that level of athlete, like you can find a history major at Stanford yeah, and a history major at Arizona. And it's going to be roughly the same thing, like roughly the same thing. You're going to get through it just fine. If you have the tutoring help. So I I think it's silly. I think it's, you know, in some schools, in some instances, just academics flexing their muscles a little bit. But um, it's dumb and it's a dumb argument. How did you get by without buying books? Like, <laughs> I wrote papers, Ryan, uh, for my history classes on occasion uh, based on the Amazon summaries of books, not <laughs> even God. the cliff notes, um, the Amazon summaries. So that's talent. I think that takes talent. It does. Do it does. It does. It does. To avoid it, but, the but, work. Well, <laughs> well. Keep in mind, I was subject to dismissal um, at one point. Like I, I skated right by academic probation, right to subject wow. to dismissal. Right. It's the kind of STD you don't want to have. Um, <laughs> and that was uh, that was the story of my academics. Nice. Uh, that's actually why I went a fifth year because at the end of my fourth year, I was subject to dismissal, and I had a two point four seven GPA as a straight history major. And I was like, well, that's not that's not great. And so I went a fifth year um, and I boosted that all the way up to a two point seven one. Nice. That's a success story. Right I there. like that. Yeah. I don't think I wouldn't have lasted very long without getting like the engineering stuff. They're a little. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I had to do that on summary. My uh, my roommate, my um, my sophomore year, my roommate um, challenged me at the beginning of the year. We took a class together and he's like, don't go to class. Don't go a single time. I will turn in your papers for you. I want to see what happens if you don't go to class at all. <laughs> don't buy the book. I'm going to just translate. And, you know, I was just like, whatever. And and so I'm like, okay, that sounds great. And uh, so he would just like tell me what happened in class and then like tell me the general idea of the, 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 the class. And I ended up with like, I don't know, I think I got like a C plus or a B minus or something. <laughs> you never went. It was great. It was great. I am. Uh, yeah, I'm a real advertisement for that UCLA education nice. right here. That's good stuff. All right. Uh, This is Mike Leach application from Andrew, Ryan, and Dave. If you haven't heard, Mike Leach is teaching a five-week seminar class on insurgent warfare and football strategy. He has two questions for students uh, answer for their application. 
Uh, I thought it would be interesting to hear your two answers to the questions. Obviously, I won't use your answers for my own application because I want to sound at least a bit, a little knowledgeable. Uh, so this is, okay, so he's doing a seminar at Washington State, and these are the questions he's apparently asking according to Andy. One, can British strategy and the Malay insurgency be used today? Not interested in hearing Dave's advocate for supporting the communists. Well, um, the Malay insurgency, if I'm remembering correctly, was essentially um, like the little taster's menu for the British um, for what you see the U.S. would eventually experience in Vietnam. Okay. But what there was like a communist group and a. Yeah. But the thing was, it was very small scale. And so small scale strategies worked for the British to a much greater extent. Like they could prioritize essentially uh, very well trained individual soldiers because they weren't facing an army of whatever the Viet Cong ended up numbering, like half a million people. Um, It was, you know, tens of thousands, I think, at most. So, and also, I, I think the Malayans didn't have necessarily the. I think they were more in support of the British to a certain extent, largely because they had just gotten done helping them fight the Japanese and pushing them out of Southeast Asia during World War II because it was like early 50s instead of – it was right. late, late 40s, early 50s. It was like of, Korean War time almost, right? right? Instead, or, okay. of, instead of 1960s. So it was kind of a different vibe. You had people who like had a real like vested interest in the British you know, point of view. So – I think there. So uh, to answer the question, Andy, um, I would say in specific circumstances, yes, um, that kind of small scale uh, prioritizing the individual soldier, um, yes, could work, but only in kind of those insurgent circumstances where it's not a broad scale military conflict. Interesting. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I mean, I knew a little bit about it. But I'm glad I have a history major to like fill in some of the gaps. There you go. Uh, but, you know, armies aren't as big. You're, there's not like battleships and everything anymore. No. It's a lot more special forces. So maybe that would be effective on a smaller scale like that than. Um, yeah, than yeah, maybe. I, I, but uh, I also don't know that like. I mean, a lot of it worked because there was colonial relationship between the British and the Malayans going be- or the Malayan, Malayans who ended up staying loyal um, for a couple hundred years of you know, colonial British rule. So, I mean, if you look at, there aren't those kind of colonial holdings anymore. I mean, we've got our pseudo colonial areas, but I mean, nothing where we've engendered a lot of, uh, (laughs) a lot of local support. Um, And uh, the British, obviously their empire went to crap. And so I don't think you would end up with any kind of loyal, loyal people on your side who are actually in any way invested in your side. I mean, you might end up with some puppet, people but have you been there at all or have you ever no 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 no. i'd like to go my my buddy and at sc was from singapore and they Mm -hmm. had a like they had a a rivalry with malaysia you know but singapore is like basically a city it's like not even you know so these are smaller scale sort of things i think colonial and poor like i think they have like the tallest buildings in the world it's like the two twin yeah but i think it'd be cool i've seen picture picture of people that went there but i've never been you think it'd be cool to fight an insurgency there that that would be too but i was just gonna go see the tall buildings and some of the cool stuff uh you know but this is this is not a specific question i don't like it that it's not specific because it's you know because the british also were like dropping agent orange all over these people too (laughs) i mean are we talking about that because no i don't think i don't think that's effective really at all The second question was, is the wishbone offense viable in the NFL today? Why or why not? 
I mean, I think a lot of offenses are using elements of the wishbone still. Yeah, I I, I would think. I mean, I don't know if you would say completely viable just because mostly the quarterback position. Um, are you really going to? You'd have to change your your entire. You know, you'd have to change everything to just try to incorporate that. I don't know, and I think with defenses being as fast as they are, it might be a little harder to only have an offense that's you know eighty percent run or whatever that is. But I, I don't know. I would probably say no. But what, I don't know. What do you think? I mean, option offenses do work. Um, I think it's it depends on how like specific you're being about it being the wishbone offense. Like, but if we're talking about like using principles from that offense, which is what any NFL thing is doing now. Yeah. They're going to mix and match things. Yeah. You could do principles, but if it's, if we're talking about the full offense, I don't know. I'd be interested to see it because there is the accepted wisdom that you can't run it because defenses are too fast. Um, and they're just too good at diagnosing it. But I don't know when, when, when that offense is really moving, like, I don't know, it's tough to defend. Um, and yeah, like go watch Nebraska in like 95 yeah. or something. It's like pretty freaking, that was, that was wishbone, right? It was yeah. Kind of, yeah. Well, or like triple option or, or just whatever. Yeah. Even the last few years, like watch Navy, watch Georgia Tech or watch Army when it's really rolling. Not like, obviously they've had games where it's just, it's like a knuckleball pitcher. Sometimes it's just off. Yeah. <laughs> um, but when it's really going, it's, I mean, some much more athletic defenses have had trouble defending it. I mean, Georgia Tech's done a number on Georgia a couple years in the last, you know, eight. So, I don't know. I'd be interested to see a team try to do it. Like, maybe, you know, Kansas City has Patrick Mahomes go down for a little bit, and they just go crazy, and they decide to run the bone for a little while. That'd be kind of fun to see. I'd like to watch it. Um, So... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'd be interested to see it. All right. And that's from Andy. He said, I'll go with Andy over Andrew because your Dave slash David's Phil slash Philip debate, uh, as a slight to Andrew, the average UW fan compared to Andy, the average Wazoo fan. Okay, cool. So we got to talk some, um, counter insurgency <laughs> warfare. So that was good. Let's see what the next question brings. I don't know. This is from Evan UW trajectory. A lot of spacing in this, Evan. Like, there is a lot of spacing. Hello, Ryan and David. The first three recruiting classes for Chris Peterson had 15 blue chips total, three in 2014, five in 2015, and seven in 2016. The last three recruiting cl- the last three recruiting classes for Chris Peterson had 34 blue chips total, nine in 2017, 10 in 2018, and 15 here in 2019, including eight of California's 47 blue chips more than any Pac-12 program, and more than USC-UCLA combined. Clearly, recruiting is on a rapid rise in Seattle. But how does this translate to results on the field, you ask? Let's look at the last three seasons in which the 2014-2016 classes made up the bulk of the starters, and only a handful of 2017 players had a role. All of 2018 redshirted, and 2019 only just signed. 2016, Pac-12 champs 12-2 with 21 total blue chips on the roster. 2017, 10-3 with 23 total blue chips on the roster. 2018, Pac-12 champs 10-4 with 31 total blue chips on the roster. For those counting, that's two Pac-12 championships in three years with an average of 25 blue chips per roster. In 2019, the UW roster will have 43 blue chip players, which is now the most of any Pac-12 school, USC at 42 by last count. This is almost double from just two years ago. With only four blue chip seniors on the 2019 team, a 2020 class of the same average blue chips of the last few years 
would put UW over 50 blue chips total on the roster. That would be double the average of the last three seasons in which UW won those two Pac-12 championships. The Pac-12 is so fucked. And no, I didn't have a question. Sincerely, an excited UW fan in Seattle. He makes a compelling case, Ryan. It, well, I think it's trending in the right direction. I think he started off, and this was the question, you know, when you hire Chris Peterson, you hire Chip Kelly. Yep. Are they going to recruit our kind of guys? Which I think Chris Or Peterson, are they going to recruit? Right. Or maybe just decide not to recruit as a strategy. <laughs> Look. But Chris Peterson <laughs> didn't do that. It hasn't been tried, Ryan. Let's give it a shot. See <laughs> what happens. Try it out. In LA, might as well try it there because you know it's not like a recruiting no, hotbed around. No, it's not today. like recruiting matters. It's at not all. like you can recruit like with two eyes closed and one no, eye. No, no, you know, no. You but just, but it, you cannot recruit. You can full like, eyes open. Like you could have thirteen-year-old girls with like cell phones recruiting for you, and you're uh-huh. done. Okay, but we're going to move on for that. So I like the way Chris Peterson did it. He didn't sell out, not sell out, but he didn't go to Seattle. And go okay. I'm not at Boise State anymore. I'm at Washington. I'm just going to get all the five-star guys I can. He did our kind of guys. He built it up slowly. Like, like uh, was it Evan that, that wrote it? He, that yes, said, Evan. Um, showed it up. And I think you can do it where, hey, there's these four or five-star guys that I really like that, um, you know, they can be our kind of guys, but they're other people like them too. They're ranked higher than some of the guys that we would get. They don't have to be diamonds that are rough. And I think you build on that success. I like the way he's done it. And I think... You can continue to do that as long as they keep having success. Now, if they get a bunch of guys like transferring out or they, they you know, get in trouble off the field, he, maybe he backs off that a little bit. But the trend is going exactly the way Evan was saying, and I, I think that was a good way for for him to do it. You just want to get back to that playoff, and when you get there, you want to have the bodies, you want to have the horses to be able to compete with Clemson or or Alabama. Right. Or, I don't know if that's going to be like easily attainable for anyone on the West Coast right now, but he's. I think he's doing it the right way. So, Evan, you have every, every right to be excited. Well, did you play the breaking news? Uh. And it's it's just actually been reported that Jake Browning has received his, <laughs> his seventh year of eligibility for next year. It's then, yeah. And then, so. Pop the champagne yeah, in so Seattle. That's another blue chip to the roster. <laughs> And obviously the armed talent to compete with uh, the Clemsons, the Alabamas, the Auburns of the world. Yeah. This is going to be fun. Like the Pac-12 North will be fun because you got. You got Jake Browning versus (laughs) Justin Herbert. You're going to have that duel. (laughs) But you got the Washington fans are really going to be. They're going to. You could tell how mad they were just when you're talking Oregon because Oregon's going to be the hype train. You know, all those years at USC, everyone's like, oh, they're going to be awesome this year. Like that's sort of Oregon this year. Um, you know, Washington's got the, there's a lot of stake there, maybe not as much sizzle, but there's a lot well, what, of stake. I, I think it's, they're offended because Oregon's returning the starting quarterback. So they're getting all this hype. Where's the returning quarterback <laughs> love for Washington? I don't know where it is. <laughs> With <laughs> This uh, is such like an inside, inside baseball yeah, joke because much. it's just a, such a dumb joke that we came up with <laughs> many months ago and nobody gets it. I like it. It's so good. Um, yeah, I well, my for my money, I mean, Washington, I think has has got to be not just they're not just the favorite in the North for me. I think they're the prohibitive favorite um, until I see it from Cristobal and Oregon, where they're not getting blown out by Arizona and they are actually putting together like a real season, like uh, eight and four. Yeah, that's nice. That was a team that could have gone ten and two, I think, um, but. They didn't develop a number two receiver at any point or something was going on on offense where they couldn't find a number two receiver at any point. 
And defensively, honestly, I thought they were mediocre. Um, and maybe they got better at the end of the year, but I thought they were mediocre pretty much all year. Um, I need to see a lot more from them before I'm anointing them anything yeah. close to a top 10 team. And Washington has shown it. Each of the last three years, especially, they've shown it on the field with a quarterback who admittedly I think is is they can do better. Um, he's a, 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 I think he did some good things. And obviously in 2016, he was great lofting the ball downfield to John Ross. But um, the last two years have shown some warts. You get somebody in there with a little bit more arm talent. Um, suddenly those receivers are going to look a little bit better. That offense will probably hum a little bit more. And then what are they missing? Yeah. That defense every year has reloaded with new players and they're, you know, arguably even better every single year. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, Washington's the favorite until they are unseated and they haven't been unseated yet. I would agree. I mean, a couple of years ago, I think they'd lost to Stanford. And then they revenge, you know, they had the, the, the bounce back on the, you know, they lose on the road on a Friday weird game and they revenge that this year they had to play Oregon, Oregon coming off the bye on the road. They, you know, I think they'll have a good chance to avenge that loss uh, in Seattle, but they have to avoid that. Whatever it is, whatever the pitfall is, don't fall in it. Um, I think to, when they went to the playoff, I think they only lost to USC. Um, and, you know, and USC ended up being pretty good. So it, did, it didn't hurt them as much. But you can't have, you know, you get a couple of Pac-12 losses. You know, it's, you know, you got to avoid that this year. Well, and the weakness for them has always been having to play a team for the most part. I mean, they've obviously lost a couple of weird ones here and there. But uh, when they lost USC, when they lost Alabama, when they lost to Auburn, it's there's been a common factor, and that is they just don't have the quarterback who measures up, who can beat an athletic defense. Um, you know, when he's having to throw outs against corners who can play all of those receivers and press coverage and stay with them, he's not going to be able to do it. Yeah. You get a quarterback in there like a Jacob Eason or whoever it ends up being who can do it. Um, it's going to be a different higher deal. expectations from higher. Ex position. Yeah. Exactly. Higher expectations from there. And then suddenly you don't have that. Because we were building it into our previews after a while. We were just like, well, they're going up against a top, uh, an athletic defense with a great deal of talent. So you got to build that in. Right. Unless they're completely shutting them down, they're not going to score a whole lot. So you have to build that into the calculation. Maybe that governor is taken off of it now because you can say they have somebody with some arm talent who can actually hit those throws. So. Yeah, I, I think maybe you look at those couple losses they've had over the years that have been to just teams that have more athletic talent and you take those away um, yeah. or at least say they're going to be more competitive in those. Yeah, um, I think you're up next, right? Hitliday? Didn't I just do UW trajectory? Did I do that? No, I did it. Wait, hold on. Oh, you did. Oh, I'm sorry. Hitliday, sorry. Feet of clay. He just doesn't want to read your question, Hitliday. Hitliday. You're my buddy, Hitliday. Uh, I enjoyed your interview with Chris Cartman last week. Uh, it was remarkable how well his point about Herm Edwards' media treatment answered my question before you boys even got to reading it. He so was throwing some shade, and he's still throwing some shade because we were. He was saying that people were being complimentary towards Herm because he is being open with the media. Oh, yes. Um, that's exactly why Hitler day. That's entirely uh, it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we look, we crushed her and, you know, turned it around. Like he, he's showing that he can coach. So we're, uh, we'll see. We're still waiting to see, but, uh, we're going to be complimentary when, it, when he deserves it. And he does, uh, last year after doing film study of the USC Stanford game, I wrote in to say that while the Trojan offensive linemen were clearly physically talented, they seem to be constantly out of position. Like they don't know the play or their blocking assignments. And I thought they were poorly coached. Ryan said that he's never agreed more with anything I had written. 
high praise, low bar, though low bar. And since then, USC has gone through a lot of coaching changes. I've had a hard time figuring out where exactly the O-line responsibilities landed or really what was going on there. Would you please run down, one, which coaches had the O-line in 2018 and how did they come to make such a harsh uh, hash, hash out of it? Sorry, make a hash out of it. Uh, and two, who will have those responsibilities in 2019 and what are the prospects for rapid improvement nobody is actually taking over the offensive line right no they're just gonna be uh by osmosis they're gonna like they're, they're gonna watch they're not YouTube gonna videos. have one right they're gonna watch youtube videos and then figure out what to just go don't for. have one yeah. just go full seven on seven it's kind of weird the way he described this is like who has responsibilities like there there was only there's one offensive line coach usually um sometimes they have what but yeah, it was neil calloway for about three years he got fired uh what two-thirds or whatever through the season last year when when clay made a few of those changes uh and yeah i i didn't feel that they were a very well coached uh group i thought they were pretty deep i thought they had a, a good amount of talent like hitler said um and they just didn't i mean they were getting pushed around as opposed to pushing people around i'm not going to blame it all on neil callaway i don't think the offensive scheme was worth anything they had all the talent in the world at wide receiver and you didn't really see wide receivers being open a lot you saw guys making crazy one-handed catches over other people. And so they weren't really schemed open. So I'm, I'm thinking a lot of it is on the coaching side, hit the day, a lot of it with the scheme. Um, they did a lot of zone blocking. They're probably going to do a lot of zone blocking this year, but they'll, they'll have some wider spacing. And I think this overall offensive scheme is going to be better. So we'll see. But as far as responsibilities in 2019, it's going to be, um, uh, you know, you go from Neil Calloway, uh, now my blanking on, uh, uh, why uh, Tim Drevno? Oh my God! Like I couldn't remember his office. So he was the he came in as a running back. Coach I thought you were going to tell me. Oh, that's that's Bob Connolly's music. No, it's Tim <laughs> Drevno. I'm like I I just couldn't think of the name. It's getting kind of late here too, and I need one of those beers from that select beer place. Um, so yeah. Tim Drevno was the offensive coordinator for a year for Jim Harbaugh at Michigan. He had worked with Harbaugh at San Diego and some other places too. So then uh, he comes back. Last year, they brought him back as the running backs coach and like run game coordinator and pass protection coordinator and stuff. So it was really kind of a weird thing. But he was basically coming in to take over the offensive line, which he did uh, at the end of the year. So he's going to take over there. I kind of like him as offensive line coach. We'll see. I think the really important thing is the scheme. I think, you know, Graham Harrell's offense is going to actually have, um, you know, there's, there's thought behind it. There's direct. I think it's going to be a real offensive scheme as opposed to, some willy-nilly gumbo thing that they had. Um, he's never coached in a spread. I mean, in that kind of, uh, it's mostly been, uh, he's done zone blocking stuff, but it's mostly been, it's not been like this kind of air raid spread sort of thing. You know, we'll see how much that impacts things. But I don't think you need to marry the offensive line to what you're doing offensively. Uh, why would you want to do that? I don't think it's a big deal. No, as long as you have two wide receiver coaches, because it's you know an air raid, you have a lot of wide receivers. You'd want to have two instead of one that's a rookie that's never done it before. So funny story in that <laughs> vein. Um, so when UCLA transitioned to the Kennedy Palomalu insanely dumb pro style offense in 2016, and the thing that basically ended Jim Mora's tenure there. Um, they had Adrian Clem as their offensive line coach who had actually never coached in anything like a pro style offensive line system. And so like he had never put like a tackle in a three point stance like ever. Wow. Like that was stuff that they were just not doing. 
And so there was like basic stuff that even once they were like midway through the season, that they were still like just the offensive line was completely doing the wrong thing because like there had just never been like actual coaching <laughs> on like what they were supposed to be doing for this because they just didn't like ever mesh the two things. Yeah. So that's an issue. <laughs> that's an issue. You don't have to know a lot about coaching. If you were taught Excel spreadsheets like David would like in the curriculum, you could put stuff like, here's what you need as a coach and just see if they check all the boxes that's, or not. That's not even like a that's not even like a spreadsheet. Like you could use a spreadsheet for that. That's just more like a checklist. Like a checklist would be good. Um like do you have do you have the skills to like actually fit this job? Yeah. Yeah, but I hit the day real quick. I think they're not as talented as they, they lose like three stars from last year. I don't think they're going to be as deep. They should be pretty good though. So we'll see if it gets better. But I think a lot of it's going to have to do with the coaching side. But I don't feel like this is the most talented offensive line that they've had. But if they're coached better, they could easily perform better. Well, and they're, it's not even a more talented team than Washington, apparently, according to that blue chip metric. No, they're that, like this will be the first time in what probably. A long time. A long time that this won't be the most talented team in the Pac-12. 24-7 Sports does a composite of um, like a talent composite. I forget what they call it. Talent matrix, something like that. But all the guys that are on the team, you know, their their high school rankings, their roster. Last year, USC had the number four ranked roster. So, and it's like, oh, what does that mean? Well, Alabama, Ohio State. Georgia, like those were the teams above USC. So those rosters were pretty well. So right. So they're right there. <laughs> they're right Performance there. Performance wise. Yes. I think USC was way, way over it. I think Florida State they was were the within other like one. seven wins of those teams last year. <laughs> but for the, so yes, they're, so I'm curious to see what it looks like this year because they did have a lot of defection, you know, a lot of departures and, you know, not as going to be as good of a recruiting class as they normally have. So it'll, yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll probably be less talented than Washington. And that'll be like the first time like ever. Well, that doesn't matter because when you've got a coach like Clay Helton in charge, right. You make up for that kind of deficit. Yes. Right. So I feel really good about it for, for USC. Yeah. When you lose games, when you have more talent, when you have less talent, it should be better. No, right? it's just, it all, it, it's all, <laughs> you know, he's gonna, he's gonna progress to the mean here. Yeah. You know, he's, it's just been a lot of underperformance, but it's gonna, we're going to shoot right up. Gotcha. All right. Uh, This is from Taylor. Pac-12 Network. Ryan and Dave, in the wonderful world of college conferences running media networks, I have been on the outside of viewing all of the negativity. To be frank, I've never had an issue. I live in East Tennessee, so the issues many Pac-12 fans have had to face generally do not impact me in terms of viewing, cable companies, etc. Dare I say it has actually been a pretty great setup to have Sling TV with the ability to watch all 12 schools on six separate channels. So while many complain and I sit listening to the merited derogatory comments towards Champagne Larry. The truth is, we all know Champagne Larry likes to roll large, right? (laughs) (laughs) Every time when I hear the laughing in the drop, I keep thinking it's us actually laughing until I start hearing my own laugh, and I'm like, wait, I'm not laughing. Um, I was only able to enjoy the misery vicariously. That was until today. I am an avid baseball fan, love the sport, and have been to all 30 current Major League stadiums, 31 if you count Turner Field. Needless to say, it's spring and I'm getting the itch to see games. Why not enjoy some of the ASU series with Notre Dame this weekend? As I sit down with my computer this evening, after the weekend games have concluded with an upbeat excitement prepared to watch some baseball for the first time in months, I visit Pac-12 Network's website to see only a box score and written rundown of the game. 
They literally have a crew to live stream the events, yet do not take the time or make the effort to archive the stream in order to view the game. Your option is to view it live, or you cannot view it at all. Until today, my hatred for the Pac-12 network was only alive through others, but that was until today. Did you all know this was a thing? I'm trying to wrap my mind around how any media company would think this is profitable or helpful for fans to watch. By the way, sorry for all the jumbled texts a few weeks back. Unfortunately, as I decided to write an email this time to avoid that mess again, I have written more than you care to read. Nonetheless, here's to roll in large. Cheers from Tennessee, Taylor. Herocious. That That's is, incredible. That you can't watch it. I wonder what that is. I, I, so one thought, Taylor, um, I know they've been slow putting content up on the website um, after the fact before um, that I know the like football in 60s don't come out until like Tuesday or Wednesday, typically um, after the games the previous weekend. Um, so it could just be that they have one person who's in charge of uploading this stuff and they just don't get to it till midweek. Um, but if they're actually not putting that content on the website, that's insane. Maybe it's their way of incentivizing people to watch live. Uh, so they can watch ads for the Pac-12 network in between the Pac-12 network games, but that's crazy. It's you spend all that time, all that money to to get the, you know to broadcast it. Dozens of people watch, but if you could watch a stream of it, and then it's like, oh, that was a good game. You could promote it, like, yeah. hey, you you missed ASU and uh, Notre Dame. It was a great series. Here's the game. You know, game three was a walk off, but I don't know what it was. But here you go, and uh, and you can and watch it, and you tweet it out. I don't remember them tweeting out ever like, Hey, go back and watch this or anything like I, I, I it's probably a thing. Uh, we could ask, I'm sure we could ask, uh, you know, we could ask John Wilner or something or, um, who's been on fire lately. He did it. We're, I was actually going to have him come on. We, we'll, we'll have him come on again soon, but he's been doing a lot of the stories he wrote. He's been yeah. doing a lot of radio hits. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm curious to why that would be. Maybe it is some sort of thing like in their contract, um, you know, and one of the reasons Wilner says you can't, um, oops, just dropped my phone. One of the reasons you can't, uh, you know, drop the regional networks is because they have to under contract broadcast 850 live events a year or whatever. So right. you need all the regional ones. Maybe part of it is, and it's, you know, it, the, the, you know, you have to watch it live and that's the incentive, but it's just that, that makes absolutely no sense. It just makes that first contract that last 12 years look even dumber uh at this point where it's like there could be some value in some of that stuff you know not 850 of them a year or whatever but man if you can't even it's just like the guys that are doing a radio show and you have to listen to it on your in your car and there's not it's not pod everyone does it you podcast everything now so you record it like you're you're spending the time you you put it out there and let people see it in perpetuity not just right when you're live that's awesome they're so bad <laughs> Uh, okay, USC and OKG. Hi, guys. I'm not a Trojan fan, but I found the last recruiting cycle and all the USC drama very interesting. Ryan made many comments about how USC's tradition with recruiting is simple. Get a list, recruit all the highest ranked guys, and send them to the NFL. On the other hand, you have the whole OKG, other kind of, our kind of guys uh, thing going on at Washington. Hard to explain, but results in very few offers similar to Stanford. My question is... Is it time for USC to start incorporating a little OKG philosophy to its recruiting approach, or is it time to double down on what they've been doing? Thank you from Justin. I think Washington's going the other way. They're getting, I don't think it's getting away from the OKGs, but they're definitely trying to go for more of the high rank stuff. I think that's part of USC's DNA. Like you're in LA, 
there's guys at all these, you know, modern day and Oaks Christians, the five-star dudes just want to come to USC a lot of the time. So I think you don't get away from that. Uh, you, some guys you don't recruit, you know, like a, a Kayvon Thibodeau that USC and UCLA that's in their backyard. They didn't recruit them all that hard or kind of stopped doing it. So I think you can do that somewhat, but if you you can't just avoid, like, I'm going to go look for three-star guys. One of the things advantages of being at USC is you can get all those guys. I don't think you, you, you could avoid some that you don't think are going to be your kind of guys, but it doesn't mean you stop recruiting the high ranked guys at all. I think Washington's going the other way. UCLA is doing something different. You can explain that, but that's, I, I wouldn't, you know, advise. No, I can't. No, I can't, Ryan. <laughs> don't tell me what I can or can't do. I can't explain what UCLA is trying to do. I'm um, such a defender of Chip Kelly too. And I don't know what to say. I about. don't know. They're, they're, they're starting off this cycle better. So I'll, I'll withhold any more uh, criticisms, but yeah, I think what Washington did was they, they started their recruiting, I think, to build a culture, to build a program. But they're now recruiting a lot of these same guys. They're they're, I mean, we just talked about all the blue chip ratings for these guys. Like they're going after some big time dudes now uh, because they have the cachet to do it, yeah. and they're not wasting their resources trying to because they know they can do it now. USC, look, I think there's a lot made of the few programs out there that can be the exceptions to the rule, but. I really think everyone out there should get it through their heads. As Shane pointed out earlier, Huffman and Biggins and everybody who does this stuff, they're they're pretty good at their jobs. Yeah. Like they've been doing this a while. It's not like they're just, you know, jokers out here doing this. And the the numbers bear it out that they're pretty good at rating these guys. And um if you can get more of the highly rated guys, you you should. Yeah. Because they're good. Yeah. Um and for the most part. You know, again, we've gone into this before and there is like a chicken or egg thing and there can be confirmation bias in play, but that's kind of noise in the model. But the broad strokes of the model are that uh, recruiting highly rated guys is good for your program <laughs> and, and good for, you know, increasing the talent level. Um, when you're when you're pointing at things like this and you're saying, oh, the OKG model versus um, versus recruiting highly rated guys, you always have to keep in mind who are the coaches, because. Pete Carroll recruited this way too. He recruited off of a list. I mean, he was recruiting the highly, highest rated guys and they had top five classes all the time. And guess what? They won a whole <laughs> bunch of games. You want to know why? Because Pete Carroll isn't a joke of a coach. Yeah. Clay Helton's a joke of a coach. Um, Chris Peterson, he's not a joke of a no. coach. You give him, it's the classic, you give him yours and he'll beat you. Yeah. And he'll do it with his too. Like, it doesn't <laughs> matter who he has, he's going to beat Clay Helton. You know, it's just, this is... This is kind of what it is. Um, it's a coaching sport. Um, the NFL is too, but football is a. It's very much a coaching sport. Um, talent matters a lot, but also coaching, and uh, you have to keep that in mind whenever you're doing these calculations. And I would say, you know, if I'm if I'm assessing the two, I'd say it's coaching like 55, 60 percent, and talent 45, 40. Yeah. Like you need you need the talent to actually win at the highest of high levels. But if you don't have the coach, you're not going to do any of it. Yeah. Um, Clay Elton did beat Chris Peterson, but that was like a Sam Darnold versus uh, Jake. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, on the broad strokes, I mean, yeah. obviously um, with the talent, even a joke of a coach can do some stuff. So maybe that even <laughs> goes to maybe it's more of a 50 50 than I've ever thought. But um, the end result is if you've if you've got if you've got the ability to get the players. Go go get the players. And you look at the last signing that Washington had, Puka Nakua, who I I think he would be an he'd be an our kind of guy. I mean, he's a really cool kid. He was 
uh, you know, MVP of the offensive MVP of the art, the all American bowl. He was the poly bowl MVP. I mean, he 2000 right. yards to get him after signing day, who was committed to USC and battling with Utah and Oregon for like, I don't think Chris Peterson would get involved in that. And other times this time he did, you know, they wanted to bring in yeah. a really good receiver. So, but he can, he has the cachet to do that now. So I, I just feel like he's not selling his, you know, uh, morals or anything by doing this or, you know, it, he's just going out and getting guys. I, I can go get that guy now who's committed to USC and Oregon wants them and all, and they're doing great, but I can get them. And he does. Yeah. And I think also now that he's established the culture, he probably feels more comfortable with guys who maybe are a little bit outside that norm, Yeah, you know, because they can fit into something as younger guys into a system that the older guys fall bought into. So yeah, I think that all makes sense. Nice. All right. This is from Sean from Ohio question. Hi guys, a couple questions if I may have, if I may this time. One, as a Midwesterner, I consider the Pac-12's bowl lineup to be at best a pile of you-know-what. When the next opportunity comes, do you think it would help the outside perspective of the conference to ditch the Alamo and Sun Bowls or at the very least knock them down the pecking order? If that is possible, what bowls would you replace them with? That's the problem. I don't think there are yeah. real other options. I think once Vegas gets the new stadium and you can then make the Las Vegas bowl, probably a, a much bigger bowl. Yes. Um, but that's, you know, still a year or two down the road. And I don't, whenever contracts get renegotiated, which might be even further down the road, I'm not sure. Um, they tried to do that with Levi. Um, but that's a dump. Um, <laughs> but I don't know what else you could do that's within or even within shouting distance of the footprint. Yeah. I think you need, you need something better than those. Like that's, you have to, it's not like you replace them, but you add something to the rotation. You bump them down the priority a little bit. So and Vegas this, can do that. The Sun Bowl is like the Alamo Bowl, I think is kind of direct because it is just a big 12 home game, but the Sun Bowl, look, it's, it's There's history there. It's There's, in El Paso, yeah. but it is a historic bowl. Like yeah. it was one of the first four bowl games. Um, and the people there, like, I, I don't know, maybe I have a soft spot for it, but the people there take it really seriously. Yeah. They're super hospitable. They really make it a bowl atmosphere. Um, and I think the players generally, if they're not complete dickheads about it, like right. some USC program I can yeah. think about in recent <laughs> years, they like it. Like, they take to it because it is kind of a whole thing. Like, you go out to Cattleman's and you have the big steak dinner at that one weird place off the off the highway, yeah. out in the middle of nowhere. And, like, you do kind of a bunch of interesting fun things you embrace the culture um there's like a whole like welcoming dance thing you do where everyone gets in sombreros and it's just kind of a you know a kind of a neat deal um so i think the the sun bowl i think would be one to always keep um for the pac-12 because i think it's just kind of a neat experience for the teams the alamo bowl i think was never a great addition i don't think it's a great fit it's a better bowl because um you're generally matched up against what the big 12's number two or number i think three. so yeah it's a higher one um so it it, it worked out from that perspective it, it was a little bit better in the hierarchy but frankly there's just not that many there's just not that many out beyond the rockies um for pac-12 teams to to get into and that's just that's the story of the sport. There's not many neutral site games out here because there's only like two or three places to play them. And now with the LA stadium, maybe LA can get a, a second bowl game of some sort. Yeah. That's, you know, something. Um, and maybe you can make that more of a, a mid tier, maybe even upper tier bowl, but you've already got the Rose bowl out there. So how much more can you do? Um, but certainly there, I think there could maybe be one more that fits there. Um, but I think it's going to be self-created or elevation of current existing bowls more than it'll be 
adding stuff to the inventory. Yeah, I agree with you. El Paso, if you don't know, it's like, it's pretty much New Mexico. Like, it's very far away. I think, like, the distance from L.A. to El Paso is, like, the same as the distance from El Paso to Houston or something. Yeah, it's it's, it's a whole different world from East Texas. Like, it is, it is, like, very desert, very, it has more of a Tucson feel to it than anything like San Antonio or Houston or Austin. It's not at all like those places. It's got a very... There is a very like Mexico feel to it. Um, I mean, it's right across the border from Juarez. Yeah. Like, there's the border crossing right there, and it's got a, it's got a real cultural stamp. And it's you know, the town itself. There's a little bit of a depressing factor to it, um, but there is. I, I just think it's kind of cool. I think it's like kind of a cool, different cultural spot for kids to go to. Um, so I wouldn't want to ditch that one, but Alamo. I could get rid of in a heartbeat. Yeah, but they, and then they they back that ball a lot too. They, they, it's important to them, so I think you you go there. I think the kids will have a good experience, you know. Yeah, as long as they don't treat it poorly. like or the head coach doesn't treat right. it right. Like, yeah, like something like, like that. Yeah, you know. I <laughs> uh, was there. He had a second part. All right. right. Uh, two. Who would you consider from each division to be the most volatile team compared to the last season's finish? Could be an upward or downward finish from last year's finish. Why do you think the teams you choose will improve or regress so much? Ooh, okay, volatile from where they were. All right, so let me look at the let me pull the whole up the south is, standings from last year. The whole South is pretty volatile. Um, All right, so we have so last year's standing just to refresh everyone's memory out there. Uh, the Pac-12 North was Washington, Washington State, Stanford, Oregon, Cal, Oregon State. Um, Oregon State was the only really bad team at two and ten. Everyone else was Cal was seven and six, Oregon, Stanford, nine and four, Washington State, 11 and two, Washington, 10 and four. And then the South was Utah, nine and five, Arizona State, seven and six, USC, five and seven, Arizona, five and seven, UCLA, three and nine, and Colorado, five and seven. I don't know. I'm not, nothing's jumping out like super volatile. Like Oregon could go up from like four to two or something. Um, Would that be volatility? Uh, I mean, like, what does that mean? Are they going to go from eight and four to like, 10 and 2, 11 and 1. Just look at the pure standings. Like if they are fourth in the north, right? So um or were they tied for third? They were they were fourth. Yeah. Uh or like ASU was second in the south, like if things go south there for some reason, then you know that could be they could drop down to fourth or fifth. Um but I don't see like Colorado or Oregon State like jumping out of the cellar. I don't see I think Utah is probably going to win it again in the, the South. So I don't see them like dropping a bunch. Um, I don't see Washington dropping a bunch. I mean, maybe like if Washington State has a, a terrible year or something that they Let's could. Let's do it differently. Who do we think has the best chance to like go plus or minus three wins off their last year's total? Okay. Hmm. So I would say UCLA at three and nine. I could see them six yeah. and six pretty easily this year. I could see so that. I'll give them that. Um, I think Washington State could, you know. Could they be an eight? Would they win eleven? Could it be an eight-win team? Yeah, I mean, it depends on how Gage Gabrud um, ends up making an impact there. But yeah, I mean, they could drop down. Um, so Washington State goes down a little bit. Uh, UCLA goes up a little bit. I mean, USC can go eight and four easy. Um, yeah, they could. Last year they had the profile of a seven and five team, not a five and seven team. It was just they got kind of bad breaks um, and just so horribly coached. Um, <laughs> Everybody else, I mean, Arizona, yeah, I could see them boosting that up. I think that defense was still pretty young. They could get a lot better. Arizona State, as we learned last week, a lot of experience on the offensive line returning. Yeah. Um, they could. 
I don't know if they'd be three wins different because they went seven and six last year, but maybe two wins different. They could see them going nine and three. Or what about Cal? Cal's the tricky one because they just don't know what their quarterback situation is yeah. going to look like. Um, because they have the defense, obviously, but if they if they can't figure it out offensively, I mean, I think they're stuck in the same boat where there's a hard ceiling to them. So again, I can't see it three wins different. Oregon State, I can't see them getting to five and no. seven next year, um, but I think they could be better. Everyone else, I think, could be roughly in line with what they're doing. I think the ones that you're looking at is potentially moving significantly are Washington State just kind of regressing a little bit because replacing quarterback again for the second year yeah. in a row, you just don't know if you're going to strike gold that, again. That's a lot of wins, you know. Like that's yeah, eleven that's and two a, is tough. Yeah, um, <laughs> and then you know UCLA, USC, and Arizona, just because the Pac-12 South is just so down. Yeah. Each of those teams, I could see doing it. Cool. All right. Uh, that was Sean in Ohio. Thanks, Sean. And then we got one last. Uh, we got a text message. Uh, Rick Neuheisel is 2-0 with Arizona. He's talking about the uh, the AAF. I think someone owes him an apology. Ha, 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 ha. That would be you, I think, owes him an apology. Let's see. So that's the Alliance of American Football. Uh, Rick Neuheisel apparently doing pretty well. So he started off. Because he has gloves now. Let's see. What was his record? Oh, okay, so he won one game at UCLA before then losing three straight in his first season. Okay. I was wondering if he went 2-0, and but no, he lost uh, 59 nothing in his second game at BYU. Uh, no, no, I will not owe him an apology. <laughs> um, he, is, uh, he remains um, a terrible football coach. Um, the AAF, have you watched any of it? I watched, uh, I, I think it was the first first weekend like i watched uh i think it was san antonio and uh san diego okay it's kind of neat like with the did we i don't know if we talked about this but like no kickoffs yeah um yeah but i didn't watch any of this past weekend did you do you watch them or i no? haven't watched a bit yeah but i i hear it's like a lot of old like college names from pac-12 days i mean nelson spruce they're like oh my god yeah. there's nelson spruce you know or Mike Bercovici or whatever, you know, yeah, exactly. dudes that you know. And uh but I'd like to watch I'd definitely like to watch some more and just kind of break it down and see some of the players and you know, there's familiar names, you know. Um they got Spurrier out there coaching. Spurrier's great. coaching, uh you know, the great Rick, Rick Neuheisel. Neuheisel. I mean, that's what we just discussed. Uh pretty cool, you know, some cool stuff. Yeah. You know, San Diego gets a team again. Uh, you know, place like San Antonio, like we were talking about El Paso. San Antonio, they love the Spurs. You know, like they they just like they're all in on the Spurs. Yeah. You give them something else that you know, give them a little morsel, and uh, you know, I think they can get behind they it. They had a they had a USFL team too back before that one. Yeah, down. I think so. Yeah. Well, uh, Neuheisel, I think, was on that. Was the, he the USFL? I think it was the Gunslingers or something like that. Nice. In San Antonio. But like Vegas getting uh, you know a hockey team, like they just really get behind that. I think there's some cities out there that you can get some support from and, and people love football. So I think it'll do the, the ratings actually weren't bad. I think the first weekend it was like a little over two, 2.1 or something. And uh, you know, that's pretty good. Like, you know, beats a lot of baseball beats a beats, lot of beats stuff. Beats anything on the Pac-12 network. Yeah. Well, I mean, that would crush everything on the Pac-12, but yeah. Um, so I think, I think it'll do all right, but they're going to have next year though, the XFL. And I think there's another one or something. So I don't know if there's room for all this, but, Maybe it joins together in, in one cool spring football league that has the support of the NFL. Uh, I think it would be kind of cool. That'd be a lot of fun. I'd take it. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, I guess we're... Uh, we're wrapping up here. Where, where are we at? 
Got me nearly. Oh two my hours. god, an hour and fifty minutes. Like this is. Uh, how did this happen? I mean, I did end up talking a long time about counterinsurgency in Southeast <laughs> Asia. Like that <laughs> happened for a while. That that did a little bit. Um, I took that in stride too. I right handled away. that one. You you like like you bought your books from school. Like I had like I had bought all of the books <laughs> instead of reading the Amazon summaries. <laughs> Uh, that's pretty awesome. Well, it's good that it was good to have you in studio. You know, it could have been worse. Yeah, yeah. it's cool. Hopefully, people liked it. And we uh, should have beer in here when we're recording next time. I, I could have planned that. I guess I didn't. Uh, Again, I only gave you seventy-two hours notice. That's good. But it, like, we should do that next time. If, I, how did I find out? It was like mentioned in passing or something. I think I mentioned at the end of our last show that. We oh, would by the way, done. I'm going to be here. Oh, yeah, and that was what five days ago. Yeah. We recorded on a Wednesday. Yeah. yeah so. Uh, but, you know, of course, Dave was coming out here, so he was keeping me up to date. He sent me his itinerary, all this stuff. No, it was me texting him yesterday, like, hey, are you going to – or maybe it was today. Was it today or yesterday? It was yesterday, okay. I think. <laughs> hey, uh, you around? Are we going to do anything? Yeah, yeah. How about tomorrow? Yeah. <laughs> how about tomorrow at 6? <laughs> that was kind of a random request, too. But it's fine, whatever. Whatever. You don't have anything to do at dinner time, right? No. You know, why would I want to do anything like that? Like, why would you want to, like, I don't know, hang out with your wife or do anything no. worthwhile? Uh, well, I think these previews will work even if spring ball hasn't started. It'd be nice to get a little. <laughs> well, like, I mean, we did just talk for an hour and 50 minutes about, like, I mean, Oregon for 30 of it and yeah. then nothing for an hour and <laughs> hour and 20. So that was great. But we'll, I think we can get some more of those. It'll be better when spring football actually gets started. Yeah, when there's actually things going on and we don't just have to ramble. But we do need to get you know an update of who's left and who's mm -hmm. coming back and mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. So uh, we'll work it out. But keep sending those questions. Yeah, it was a short week and we still had a lot of that was, questions. So. That was impressive. Uh, yeah, ask your history questions. Bring them. Bring the thunder. <laughs> Bring the thunder. And I will respond. Awesome. Dave's going to put his degree Oh, wait, wait, wait. We just, got a, we just got another one. Oh, we did? Oh, Oh no! Just somebody just sent us more on the ASU golf course. I can't hear any more about this golf course. I just don't. Oh, I can't. here's a please Venmo the appropriate funds for filling twenty minutes. For the, okay, the um, golf course is closing in early May. All right, and so yeah, so but whatever they're building, like Cartman said, uh, it will go to fund uh, the athletic department. That's kind of cool. That's great. All right. Well, we'll wrap it up. Uh, that is David Woods right here in the studio. I am Ryan Abraham, and you've been listening for the last two hours to the podcast of Champions. We appreciate you listening. Thank you so much. Please visit our sponsors. Uh, they do a great job. Mac Weldon, Mint Mobile. Uh, thanks so much for listening, and we will talk to you next time.